beautiful perfection There's nothing that's harder to find Someone to lead us, protect us and feed us And help us to make up our minds We need a man that's sophisticated Quiet and strong and well-educated Where to go, what to do Could it be somebody super like you? Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. This episode, we are talking about... Well, we're pivoting from last week's episode, um, because we, we kind of decided to start this this chain of movies <laughs> that... I don't even know if we're going to continue on now, but uh, the idea was to basically, we'll watch a movie, we'll talk about it, and then for the next episode, we'll choose a movie that is somehow tied or related to it it could be like a shared actor or a shared director or some other element of the movie yeah. uh is going to carry forward and so last episode we talked about ishtar which had uh songs that were written by uh singer songwriter paul williams and uh so we sort of latched onto that and this episode we are talking about another film with songs written by Paul Williams, but it also stars Paul Williams, and that is Phantom of the Paradise. He, of course, wrote that wonderful song that you just heard at the top of this episode. Yeah, not <laughs> sure which one it is yet, but... Yeah, uh, but I, I love it. Yeah, it's that's a... a good song. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, I'm sure that uh, it's it's a really, really good one. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I could stand behind pretty much any song in this movie. Yeah, that well, that's a, it's been sort of a fun thing uh, in all of these episodes, sort of choosing which pieces of music. Sometimes it's pieces of the score, or sometimes it's a song that's featured in in the movie. But I, you know, yeah, I throw in a little piece of music for the opening and the closing of the uh, the podcast episodes. So this episode, I don't know what I'm going to do because there's so many good choices. Never thought I'd get to see the devil. Yeah, that'd be the one that I'd probably be like the least excited Meet about. The devil, not see the devil. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah. Anyway, so Phantom of the Paradise from nineteen seventy four. Yep. And yeah, remembering from remembering from memory about that. Um. <laughs> That's where all my best remembering happens is memory. Yeah. Directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, this was the first time that I had seen this movie. And I'm actually pretty surprised at how long I've been able to go without really knowing much of anything about this this movie. I had seen images from it. I've seen, like, sort of posters. And, you know, I, I, I was familiar with the, uh, with, with the Phantom figure uh, and, and his, uh, the helmet and the, and the, you know his whole costume, um, but that was pretty much it. I knew nothing of of this movie. Did you know ahead of time that it was? Um, I mean, before I mentioned it in the previous episode, did you know about Paul Williams doing the music, or that it was a Brian De Palma movie? Nope. <laughs> I somehow I've been completely <laughs> unplugged from this movie in my entire life, and after watching it, I was just I was I was re- really blown away. I was like, how the hell has this movie escaped me for so long? Yeah, it's it's still to this day kind of under a lot of people's radar. Who like I know would love it, 
like I, um, you know, this year I was part of a Rocky Horror Picture Show shadow cast in Glens Falls. Um, I was a Transylvanian and also Brad's understudy. <laughs> and I would mention Fan of the Paradise to different cast members from time to time, and I was surprised at how few of them knew about it. Because it seems like if you're a fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Phantom of the Paradise is like right up your alley. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that was something watching this film definitely rang some Rocky Horror bells for me. Um, now, this movie actually came out before Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Um, and you had sort of said to me uh, sometime after we watched it, uh, that you were like, there's, there's no way that they didn't watch Phantom of the Paradise when they went in to make that movie. Yeah. Because there are just certain elements that are a little too, uh, so there's a clear influence there. Yeah. And like the Rocky Horror show, like the stage show existed before this movie came out, but the film, the Rocky Horror picture show there's definitely influence there. And they were both released through 20th Century Fox, which I don't know if that's a coincidence. Well, and it's interesting because um, Phantom of the Paradise, when it came out in theaters, was not a very big success. No. So it's weird that, like... And neither was Rocky Horror. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why they were like, well, second times, you know, th- this one will actually do really well. Well, it's probably, like, the pedigree of the, the, the stage success that Rock, Rocky Horror had. Well, that, yeah, that makes sense. They were like, well, it's... Which that leads me to a thought. Okay, has there been a stage show of Phantom of the Paradise? Oh, are you asking me? Yeah, I do. Oh, I don't know. know I thought you knew about something. No, I don't. I I was. (laughs) Um, I feel like there was an attempt, but I didn't really look into it. Yeah, based on the uh, the the interview on the uh, Shout Factory Blu-ray, with the interview with Paul Williams, he seemed to indicate that there hadn't been one. He was like, if they ever do it or whatever. And I'm wondering, I'm like, why the hell isn't Phantom of the Paradise a friggin' like Broadway show? Maybe nobody thought to do it until after uh, the debacle of Carrie the musical. And maybe they were like, I don't know if we should keep doing De Palma musicals. Was there actually a Carrie the musical? Yeah. Um, oh, I forget the actress's name. The The woman who played the um, the gym teacher... I think plays Carrie's mom in like the Broadway show. It was not a well-received production. So this was a production back in like the seventies or like shortly after the movie came out. I think they it were was like... like the the late eighties, early nineties, maybe. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. I'm these are just numbers I'm pulling out of my head right now. Don't like. Yeah, sure. Like this is not something I've looked into in a while. I just remember hearing about it a long time ago. That seems like such an odd choice. Yeah. It's like, you know. The movie's great, big success. I mean, I I don't know why you think that it should be a musical. But. It make it makes sense now, or it doesn't make sense. But I mean, like, it makes more sense now that somebody would have thought of it, because now, well, for like a few years now, like it, it seems like every show that opens on Broadway is just the musical version of blank, just some right. random movie that came out. Let's do a musical of it. I don't know why. Or some random historical figure. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, just, <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Like, I've, I heard good things about The Color Purple, but when I watched the movie, I never thought, like, this needs to be a Broadway show. And I'm wondering who did. I don't know. It's Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah, the Spider-Man thing, I mean, 
don't know. To me, that made sense because it's like, oh, see all these crazy acrobatics, you know, live. It'd be like a Cirque du Soleil Almost like a Cirque du Soleil thing, thing yeah. yeah. But with like, you know, superhero hijinks and you know, Spider-Man swinging above you and stuff. But, I mean, yeah, that turned out to be a complete disaster. And doing a Phantom of the Paradise live musical show... I don't know. Like, how do you think they'd go about it? Would it be just like a cabaret show where just people are coming out and just doing songs? Because, I mean, the songs in the movie are all, like, performed songs for the most part. They're just yeah. like, here's a person on stage doing a song. Yeah. Um, which... Or here's somebody, like, writing a song. Yeah. Or auditioning for a, for a song or whatever. Yeah, whatever. They're all practical songs. They're... Yeah, which is... I mean, I know a lot of people who whenever they're like, oh, I don't like musicals, the first thing they'll say is, like, it doesn't make sense when everybody's just bursting out in a song. And it's like, I can think of so many great musicals where no one does that at all. There's a lot of great musicals where all the songs that are just like, organically yeah. part of the story. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, maybe this is a song to show to them, but I think even then they'd be like, I don't know, man. Too much music in this movie. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the songs in this are very, they're not, like, musical songs. As I mean, which as a phrase doesn't make any sense. What I mean is like they are all just they're not, spoken they're not, dryly with yeah. no intonation and no instrumentation. Yeah. Um, no, like they're they're not uh, songs that sound like they would be. They're not like um, they're all pop songs, basically. Yeah, they're pop songs. Yeah, exactly. They're not uh, musical theater sounding songs. They're not like you know from Oklahoma or you know hmm. something like that. And wasn't that um, wasn't Oklahoma sort of like the start of that trend of people just bursting into songs? Because nobody in that show was like performing. They're all just like, all the songs are either establishing characters or moving the story along, right? Was that, I think, wasn't that like the first one to do that on a successful level? I don't know. Really? I don't know why I'm like, Max, Mr. Musical yeah, Theater I'm, Expert. <laughs> I am like the, the, <laughs> the least knowledgeable person when it comes to like, theater let alone musical theater okay you know i was you know you would know more than i would you you actually performed in oklahoma yes i did i i was judd fry yeah so um, you know why are you asking me oklahoma questions that was a long time ago that was yes i was in musicals in high school that's basically i think i read that about the play oklahoma once somewhere so let's just assume it's true okay all right but but phantom of the paradise is not an oklahoma style musical <laughs> so <laughs> Well, glad we got that out of the way. Right. Um, <laughs> this was the perfect way to start talking about this. <laughs> yeah. How similar is it to Oklahoma? Tim? Um, no, what what the movie is, and I mean, I, yeah, I just uh, I feel like it would be the perfect kind of stage show. Yeah, because it, I mean, it lends itself to a uh, great stage because i mean the, the stage stuff that we see in the movie where it is actually like oh this is being performed in front of a stage you know with like with the stuff with beef and uh the various bands like the uh, the juicy fruits or the um the beach bums or the undead who somehow the first like at least the first two times i watched the movie i didn't even notice that those were the same three guys until the end credits yeah so or i shouldn't say the first two times because i saw the but the first time i watched it yeah it wasn't until the end credits i realized oh those are the same guys yeah so so i guess for anybody who hasn't seen the movie and if you're listening to this and haven't i mean i go watch the movie it is it is really really good i yeah. i i can't recommend it enough actually i was i was really uh taken 
by it. Um, but general outline is there's this uh, this great record producer known only as Swan, who's played by Paul Williams, and he's opening this uh, this new uh, what's going to what's build as sort of like the Disneyland of uh, of like rock venues um, called the Paradise, and he's looking for music uh songs and musicians to basically create this whole opening uh event uh for for the paradise and so there's this uh songwriter by the name of winslow leach who has written this uh this cantata based on uh faust and he's a very passionate artist and swan basically steals his music and uh bastardizes it like he does with seemingly all music he sort of boils it down to like oh this is what you know this is what the the people want and i'm gonna like you know ram it down their throats and it becomes this whole sort of like cookie cutter kind of like manufactured uh music yeah um which leads into yeah so there are these bands that are sort of featured throughout the film that are like the the opening uh the first band we see is uh the the, the juicy fruits and it's basically Sean on Yeah, yeah. It's it's this, this like sort of like fifties revival band that he's like you know oh we're we're riding the uh, the nostalgia wave uh, in in you know seventies or whatever. Um, and then there's later we see this other band that's sort of just this complete Beach Boys knockoff called the Beach Bums. And then later there's like this like uh, heavy rock band the Undead and they're painted up like Kiss. Even though apparently uh, the production designer didn't know of Kiss at the time, yeah, Kiss wasn't really big yet, and they also—I mean, his influence was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and like, cause he, Jack Fisk, um, he had worked on the film Messiah of Evil, and during the making of that, um, the directors, whose names I can't remember right now, but they're also the people who made Howard the Duck a decade later. <laughs> probably not what they want to be remembered for but they um, will <laughs> yeah and i mean they also i think wrote the screenplay for temple of doom okay which yeah. they're like why don't you talk about indiana jones you <laughs> assholes why do you gotta why do you always go to Harvard and american graffiti you know the oscar nominated <laughs> film there but yeah anyway they were making messiah of evil and they had recommended that he watch caligari to just sort of like immerse himself in classic horror and he ended up loving it and um the stage set for the undeads uh, sequence is yeah. I mean, as soon as the curtains open, it's yeah, like, it's, oh, this is totally just yeah. It's like know. this German expressionism yeah. type thing with like painted on shadows and everything, and he carried that over into their makeup where he's like painting shadows on their faces. Little did he know there was this band Kiss who was so sort of doing that, but not really. But I mean, time. what if, the, the, I mean, you look at them and it's just like they have like that jet black hair and like yeah. the stark white face paint with these, you know, black shapes and symbols on their faces. And it's just like, as soon as they come walking out, I'm like, wow, they're, you know, it's, it's a kiss thing. Yeah. But it was more, I mean, they were definitely aware of like Alice Cooper at the time, but I don't even, I'm going to look up right now, actually, like when kiss really started. I don't even know. Yeah. Cause it would have been nothing about kiss. I don't, yeah, I'm not a either, huge kiss fan. If this movie came out in 1974, then like, they were filming it at least in like 1973, maybe even a little earlier. Um, Kiss formed in 1973. Okay, so they were like, yeah, super new. And had they gotten into the whole gimmick thing with their makeup and everything at that time? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they started out like that. Their first two albums were both released in 1974. 
Oh, okay. Kiss and Hotter Than Hell. Well, what's funny is that it's like those un the the undead uh, band and the undeads. The undeads. Is that okay. Um, and the song that they're playing is is the Faust cantata, only it's been twisted into this like, you know, rock sound that was not Winslow's intention. And then it goes into it, there's the whole beef. Uh, there's this uh, <laughs> musician or singer uh, known only as Beef. Singer, you're gonna call him a singer. Well, I I didn't want to call him a musician. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I first said musician, like, well, he's not really. Musician. We're not looking singer. for singers. We're looking for screamers. Yes, exactly. Um, it's just funny because uh, you know, Swan was supposed to be looking for you know the sound of the future to open the paradise with. That was he was like, I, you know, enough with the nostalgia, enough enough with the old stuff. I need to find the sound of the future. And what he basically created, and what the movie basically cre- basically created, was like Kiss, and like this stage show that, and this guy Beef that just feels like he came straight out of like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. And even down to that creation scene with the tank. Yeah. Where they put all the different body does, parts does this, of like, audience Frankenstein members. Frankenstein thing, yeah. And um, it's just like the tank in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And having never seen the stage show, I don't know if that tank is there. Like, I don't know if the tank and the way that they're standing around the tank that Rocky Horror ends up coming out of, I don't know if that's specific to the movie or not. It's just really impressive to me because it's like, it feels as though they really did actually capture some sort of cultural zeitgeist that was going to be, because if they filmed it in the movie in like 73, like all this stuff was hitting like when this movie came out where it's like, here's Kiss and then here's like, you know, Rocky Horror and all this kind of stuff. And it's just... I don't know, it's, it, it was really impressive. But it was also commenting on stuff that had already happened, like Alice Cooper. Because, um, I mean, the band Alice Cooper, not necessarily the person Alice Cooper, because at one point there was a band called Alice Cooper whose right. lead singer just happened to be named Alice Cooper, and it often leads to confusion. <laughs> uh, that band effectively broke up in, I think, 1974, or at least that's when their last album as a band came out. Um and they started out just as sort of like this just really weird band that like Frank Zappa was sort of their patron um and they sort of morphed into like this more like horrific thing with like big elaborate stage shows they had their huge billion dollar babies tour which i think was 1973 which was like the biggest rock tour ever with all these stage sets that were traveling with them and also I mean, in the late 60s, when they started their, like, Mick Taylor period, the Rolling Stones were getting way into, like, sort of like this, like, satanic image. I mean, even before that, they had the album, the 19, I think it was 1967, they had this, their satanic majesties. I keep wanting to say, like, on her satanic majesty's secret <laughs> service. That's not, I think it's at... On her majesty's satanic service? At their satanic majesty's request. Oh, my God. <laughs> I need to look this up. Yeah, I'm not well versed in Rolling Stones. I'm sorry, it's history. it's just hard to say <laughs> because there's so many other things it sounds like. Their Satanic Majesty's Request. There we go. That was the Rolling Stones album. Um and then after that, you know, when they got rid of Brian Jones and got Mick Taylor and they were doing like Sympathy for the Devil. And then of course Altamont, the December nineteen sixty nine show at Altamont where, you know, somebody was murdered 
by the security guards who were Hell's Angels. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely carried over in Phantom of the Paradise. All of the security people and everything, they're all like dressed like bikers and Nazis yeah, they, and stuff. Yeah, they and totally like, look like just these thugs and act like thugs. And... Yeah. And um, it's weird that... All right, so the music in this movie is really great. Even the stuff that's supposed to be bad. Yeah, I, which leads me to think that like Paul Williams just can't... It's like impossible <laughs> for him to write a bad song. It's because even when he tries, like Ishtar, like in Ishtar, <laughs> where he's like, okay, the goal is to make songs that just sound as you know, just these are bad songs, but they wind up being like stuck in your head, endearing in like yeah. kind of these like simple kind of uh, <laughs> a way that's uh, yeah, and totally gets stuck in your head, and um, with these catchy little melodies, and <sighs> yeah. He, you know, so he's like going and he's like, all right, I'm going to write, you know, the just like a Beach Boys knockoff that just feels like, you know, something that could have been just shat out in the middle of the 60s by some other band that's just like, oh, yeah, we're going to do the whole, you know, beach scene thing, you know, carburetors, man. Am I right? You know? <laughs> but it, then you listen to the song and it's just like, God damn it, if it's not catchy. <sighs> And I feel like the thesis of the film is almost like they're saying, like, well, the only kind of, like, good, true music is just, like, one singer singing a, a ballad, and then everything else is, like, a bastardization of it. Because you've got Winslow at the piano, right, and it's like, here's yeah. a true singer-songwriter. Yeah. And then when Phoenix has her songs, it's like, okay, here's some true musical beauty going on. Right, and Winslow is like, she's the only one who can sing my songs. She's the only one who can perform it. But just like how, like, Paul Williams, even when trying to, like, make music maybe not sound good to us... Brian De Palma, when shooting these sequences, makes him look amazing. So it's like that whole somebody super like you, life at last thing. Yeah. It looks so fucking amazing. I know. Like, and like, and, and cause it, we're, we're, I want to go to that show. Yeah, we're I would on, buy their album. <laughs> totally. We're on Winslow's side the whole movie. He, you know, it's like, you know, we're totally in his bag. And it's heartbreaking what he goes through. Yes. And what he experiences. And having, you know, his, his life's work ripped away from him and ground up into this thing that he just, like, despises. But you're right. When it comes to actually seeing that stage show, I'm just like, I wish I was at that fucking show. Yeah. And that looks like, awesome. <laughs> in some ways, Swan has been right the whole time. Yeah. And it's like, yes, like he's stealing the art from the artist, but it's like, well, maybe he's the only one who knows how to present the art properly. And even though it's like made by these like independent filmmakers, Brian De Palma like came up from the underground in the 60s. Um... And, like, he's battled with studios his entire career. <laughs> but at the same time, this movie could sort of be read as, like, well, yeah, but what the studios do is they can pick out the talent and they can mold it into something good. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the issues that maybe audiences at the time had, because it was the people who would really enjoy this movie are the people who the movie doesn't necessarily like. Like, the audience in this movie they are not portrayed well the people who like this music which we as the audience of the movie like they're like it's like oh you like this you must be an idiot you're just a mindless drone following the herd and it's like fucking with us which that's in a lot of brian de palma movies he likes to fuck with the audience um which can be great sometimes femme fatale is amazing like that um but 
I don't know. I think, and I love this movie, but I think that might have been a, an issue with it finding its audience at the time is that it, it hated its audience. Yeah, because you do kind of feel a little bit guilty mm. when you when you find yourself <laughs> enjoying this stuff that like Winslow is like, no, you don't understand. Like this is not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I do kind of wish like, okay, what you know, if we could actually because the music's so great. I'm like, wouldn't it be awesome if Paul Williams actually just composed the entire cantata of of Faust as Winslow was supposed, you know, as it was meant to be. Yeah. Uh, I would be curious to know what, what that is, you know, sounds like, <laughs> but yeah, what we get is like still friggin' awesome. And it's, uh, yeah. And you do feel kind of guilty when you, when you are tapping your foot and you, then you see the pain on, on Winslow's face and, and I, you're like, Oh, I guess I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't like this. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of like this problem that, um, a lot of musicals of that era suffer from, I shouldn't say a lot, because there's two that are popping in my head at the moment, so that's not necessarily a lot. Um, but, like, um, a few years after this, you've got, like, Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. Right. Where what might be the best Beatles cover on it, at least as far as just, like, a straight song goes, is the one that ended up being a hit single, which is Aerosmith uh, covering Come Together. But in the movie, it's like, oh, they're like the evil band. You're not, you're not necessarily not supposed to like their version of the song. You're not supposed to like them. And then in uh, Xanadu, the god awful movie Xanadu, there's like sort of like a battle of the bands at the end. This, it's been a long time since I've seen Xanadu, but my memory of it is that it's full of horrible music, except for this one part where there's like this evil band that you're not supposed to like, and they're playing like a halfway decent song and it's like the people making the movie and the people who make the music that go into the movie just were like on different pages or something this it's also interesting to because paul williams did that same thing again in uh, the jim henson produced film emmett otter's jug band christmas which have you ever seen that when I was very little, I don't remember much about it's it. It's one that I like to watch every year. I, I love that movie. Um, Paul Williams wrote all the songs in it, and it's about this uh, this little band of woodland creatures who are part of this jug band, and it ends in this uh, battle of the band scenario. Mm. And we've got, so, you know, we've got our main characters playing their song, and also the uh, the the mother of Emmett Otter, she goes out there much like um, like Phoenix in this movie. She goes out just on her own and sings this beautiful song. And, uh, you know, we want either of those to win. But then there's this this band who's like the evil band who are like these like rough scallions who are tearing up the town and everybody's like, oh, those, those river bottom nightmare band, you know. They come out and they sing this song. The River Bottom Nightmare Band. Yeah, they're the River Bottom Nightmare Band. That sounds amazing. Yeah, and they come out there and they say that they they play this song and it's just like this rocking thing and it's awesome, and they win the talent show because the song is great. Yeah. And so then all of our heroes (laughs) slink off into the night and are like, "Oh man, we lost." Um, and then they find out that oh, what they really needed were each other because then they sort of combine their songs and and the two songs fit together and they you know. And then they get a job singing and playing their music elsewhere. But it's 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 interesting because it is like, yeah, we're not supposed to like that band. We're trying to root for these other people. But it's like, but clearly the music is just too yeah. good. <laughs> Something that I think like, 
is really hard to do. And I can't imagine going, you know, if you're Paul Williams and you're handed this movie Phantom of the Paradise and it's like, okay, we need you to write these songs that are supposed to be like, you know, when when Winslow's playing Faust at the beginning, it's got to be like the most beautiful thing that you've ever heard. <laughs> it's got to be this amazing song that just captures you. Okay, write that song. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, and then we need the showstopper when, when Phoenix goes out there and sings, you know, in in front of the audience for the first time and it's got to be like even more beautiful than anything we've heard in the movie before you know and then there's got to be these other like you're trying to make these songs that are supposed to be like cutting edge and so amazing and really capture this emotion that that's you know that's hard to do but he somehow nails it yeah What is the line, um, it's like, dream, dream a bunch of friends, dream each other's smiles? How fucking beautiful is that? In the, like, when Winslow's just singing at the piano. Yeah. There's just, like, little bits throughout that are just, I mean, you're a much bigger Paul Williams fan than I, just because I haven't really sought much out. And, like, I want to hear everything now. Yeah, I mean, I ha- I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Paul Williams fan, um, and I haven't really, like, I'm not, like, I don't know, I haven't really sought a lot out i guess i'm probably we're probably about equal i mean because i'm just a fan of like his work in all of the films that i've seen i mean obviously his work with the muppets um he i mean he's the the person who wrote all the songs in in the muppet movie including you know rainbow connection um and he did the muppet christmas carol and he did the muppet christmas carol i need to rewatch that i watched it when i was a kid i didn't like it and then like the past that was like 25 years ago that movie came out and like for that whole time people have been like telling me they loved it i gotta i gotta revisit it yeah more. you definitely should um it is uh i think i was just mad because it's like well jim henson's dead the muppets <laughs> should be dead too i think that was my thought at the it time was jim, i mean it was jim henson's son <laughs> it, it, honestly it's the yeah, it's the best post jim henson muppet movie ever made i think yeah. it's it's re- it really is uh is fantastic um Yeah, but it is funny because, like, yeah, there's a band like uh, like Daft Punk, who, for years, I only knew as, you know, I don't know, this band that just writes these. I don't know, I, 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 yeah, exactly. And that just didn't that just didn't appeal to me at all. I was just kind of like, eh, whatever. That's just they're just some crappy radio band. And then I I caught the end of the Grammys one year, and. Uh, their album one album of the year random access memories and paul williams went up to accept it and i was like wait a minute what the hell is he doing there and so then i looked into it and i listened and you know he he was he did a song on that album and so i listened to that song and i was like holy crap this is amazing so <laughs> and then i listened to the whole album and i was like oh daft punk is actually really good but it was because like like paul williams of all, of all people was my gateway to daft punk <laughs> I wish I could remember which episode you had told this story in before. Oh, I already told it? Okay. No, that's fine, because then they don't have to go back and listen to the old ones. All right. But, and it seems more relevant here, because we're actually talking about Paul Williams. Yeah, the reason they came up in the other one was because I said something about um, how... It, or we were both talking about how it was weird that we both ended up going to school with Kellen Wilson. Oh, God. <laughs> no idea how that came up. 
and then I mentioned how in high school, he and I were both members of uh, the Daft Club. Because if you got their second album, it came with this little ID card that says, like, I'm an official member of the Daft okay, Club. Okay, this is starting to sound very familiar. But this part can all be cut. We don't need to talk about old episodes of Talking Movies <laughs> on Talking Movies. Yeah. <laughs> Not even Carrie, probably. Yeah, so, that, that you know, we are talking about Brian De Palma. Um, and we've, we've already discussed uh, Carrie. That was actually the first film that we that we covered yeah and on there, the show. i there was a while when i was like all about De Palma, and i was very happy that we got to like sort of kick off the show with one of his movies um i feel like that used to happen to me a lot more like when i was in college like where i would just like latch on to a certain director for a while <laughs> and then just like get like all their movies on dvd yeah. and just like read all this stuff about them and then, because there was like De Palma, Billy Wilder, that was when I was doing my Lucio Fulci paper, um, Christoph Kislowski, Michael Winterbottom, Robert Altman, Woody Allen, like, and these are all people that I still love. I just sort of have drifted away from most of them. Um, I mean, it helps that Brian De Palma doesn't really make movies very often anymore. Because like at, at the time, it was like The Black Dahlia was just coming out. People are like, oh yeah, remember De Palma? He's still working. Um, but he, reading stuff about Brian De Palma is very frustrating because there are some people who, it's like, somebody told them that Brian De Palma was a misogynist at some point, so they just take it as a fact and write from that point of view. And I feel like that doesn't hold up in all of his movies, especially Carrie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't understand how that's like uh, looks poorly on women. Well, I think because some people will write like, "Oh, well, it's linking like evil with menstruation," and "Oh, isn't menstruation so terrifying?" And it's like, "Yeah, I guess," but it's more like, "Isn't menstruation terrifying to somebody who doesn't know what it is and why they're bleeding?" And like, like that's the terror in that in that opening scene. I think. That's the reason she's afraid. She's not, she's not afraid because, like, oh, my God, puberty, I'm becoming a woman, and all this stuff. It's yeah, like, and she doesn't exactly have the best emotional support system at home. Right. Like... <laughs> I don't know. But that being said, in Phantom of the Paradise, Phoenix is a very troubling character. Like, she is sort of, like... She's not really, like, a character as much as she is just, like, this image of a woman, sort of. Like, she doesn't really... It's hard to figure out who she is. Like, she wants to be famous. We know that. We know that, that she has that goal of wanting to be, like, a famous singer. Right. Um, Winslow sort of has this idea where, like, oh, my God, I met this beautiful girl this one time. Clearly, we're meant to be together. I'm in love with her. She, I don't know if that's really reciprocated on her end. She, there's that awkward hug they share in that scene when they meet right um where he's like uh it means i think you're terrific and (laughs) and she's like you do and like they hug and it's sweet and he's like oh i can Uh, help you uh you know yeah give you some singing lessons um and then like she just is not entirely sympathetic later on like you can kind of see it from her point of view where it's like holy crap there's a murderer loose. I found him. He claims he's this guy. I don't know. 
and also she's just she's really coked up by the end of the movie <laughs> and having sex with swan um well i mean the thing of it is it's like you say that like yeah she like she isn't really like a full fully formed character because yeah. she isn't like she we, the only times that we really see her are totally from winslow's perspective yeah like and I, also i i should point out like i wouldn't really consider most of the characters in this movie fully formed characters no which is not a flaw of the movie it's no, just that, uh, yeah that yeah. It, it, it's not that it's, kind of movie basically. because it's supposed to be painting the image of like what we want from and what we expect from our music idols or our yeah. our any sort of artistic idols you know mm. whether it be like actors or actresses or wh- whoever you know there's this and winslow has this kind of romantic idea about who this person should be and she appears so innocent and and also i mean this this whole movie is about like it's a it's a it's a deconstruction of the entire entertainment industry essentially yeah and how it basically is just one giant meat grinder (laughs) that you know product goes in here and it gets churned out there and you know what and you know and it's like in that in her audition scene um she's looking for a chance to sing for swan and they won't let her and she starts to walk away and swan jumps in and is like oh phoenix you know if you want to sing for me like what are you willing to give me for you to sing and she says anything and he says anything well how about your voice and uh you know, she, she is. She says it right there before she even gets involved in it. It's like she's willing to do anything, to not be, fuck Philbin, but she wouldn't. Yeah, she wouldn't. Yeah, uh, yeah she, she wouldn't, wouldn't do the casting couch. She wouldn't do the casting couch. Which, you know, it's that's also like a year earlier. Yeah, yeah. Because that's before Winslow is sent to jail, and everything. Because yeah, there's a month that goes by. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. I'm, okay, yeah. There's a month that goes by at the beginning, but then there, then he meets Phoenix, and there's like a six month stint in jail, I think. So you just imagine during that whole time that he's been in jail, she's just been like trying and trying, yeah, to like become a part of this show or whatever's happening. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is it? <laughs> the time yeah well the timetable of things because it it seems like uh when when we open the movie that the opening of the paradise is like imminent like it's about to happen yeah and then it's like a month goes by and then like another like six months go by so it's almost like a year before the paradise is actually open but it's not really important i think yeah, with Phoenix, because it's it it like really is painful to watch her. This somebody who's so like innocent and so beautiful and has so much talent, and is so like. You just want to like protect her. Yeah. And you see her just like, instantly as soon as she gets that taste of like, the audience, and that feeling, she's just like in, La La Land. You know, essentially, there's that great scene where like she's in her uh, dressing room. And she's just looking. She's just staring at herself in the mirror, right after she sings the uh, "Old Souls" on stage, and she's just staring at herself. And then Swan comes in to the room and is like, "You know, 
all right, like, we're ready to go. Like, every, you know, you're going to be a star. And she's just like, uh-huh. Like, you know, because she's just in a daze of like, holy crap, I can't believe this is happening. Right. And then she knows it's thanks to Swan, so she takes off with him to the Swanage that night. I love that. The Swanage. The Swanage. And this, this is another reason that I think that the makers of Rocky Horror Picture Show must have seen the movies, because in the sequel to that film, Shock Treatment, which like Rocky Horror, was written by Richard O'Brien and directed by Jim Sharman. That actress, Jessica Harper, who plays Phoenix in Phantom of the Paradise, appears as Janet Majors, who's Janet Weiss in Rocky Horror, um, and played by Susan Sarandon in that movie. And her character arc is basically like, she starts out as just this normal person, and then she suddenly becomes famous. And then she, like, is just like the most like uh, self-possessed, just like uh, narcissistic person. She has this whole musical number, "The Me of Me," just singing about how much she loves herself and everything. And like, I don't know. I, I wish there was more information about these connections out there. But yeah, Phoenix does definitely bring up some things about like, um, like the whole the whole notion of like uh, like the virgin and the whore. Like, um, the way, like, a lot of men, like, will view women. It's like, well, you're either a virgin or you're a whore. And, like, or, you know, in between, they're just people. Right. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, Phoenix, yes, she's not, like, oh, she's doing drugs and she's enjoying sex and all this stuff. But it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean she's not, like, innocent in the end. Yeah, or that she's a bad person or yeah. anything. It's just like, okay, so she became successful and she's making her own decisions. And, you know, it's like, why should that reflect poorly on i mean to say that that's like any i mean because we started talking about this because you were talking about people's accusations towards brian de palma being like misogynist and then you say like oh well you know the character of phoenix is troubling i guess like in that regard mm. i don't know why anyone would think that like just because this character is making choices for herself that we the audience might not think is like are good choices doesn't mean that like that's somehow reflective on all women kind. And we're seeing her often through the eyes of somebody who by the end of the film is basically crazy. Yeah. Winslow is not really completely Winslow by the end of this. And that's part of the tragedy of the film. And it is odd that like for such a, I mean, this film is, it's a fun film and there's so much like funny stuff going on. And, um, the songs are all like, or for the most part, like, fun songs, and then it ends. So, you're so down with everything. <laughs> and uh, it, it is a tragedy. Yeah, and I mean, um, I think it's kind of set up in that in that very first scene with the Juicy Fruits, with this cheesy 50s song about, oh, poor Eddie, you know, goodbye Eddie. This And the song is it's sort of like a story song about this... Uh, young guy who's trying to be an up-and-comer he's trying to be a singer trying to sell you know records and stuff and then he finds out that his poor sister needs an operation and the only the only way to save her is to become an overnight sensation and he realizes like oh you know what a good way to become famous is is if you die because there are these all these uh you know artists who become even more infamous because they died yeah and there's sort of like vague references to somebody like Buddy Holly or, you know, maybe James Dean or something like that. Um, so he decides to commit suicide so that 
his album will, you know, top the charts and he saves his sister in the end. Um, and that's kind of what happens with Winslow where it's like he dies in the end and it kind of seems to almost snap uh, Phoenix out of her, out of her, the world that she's in. Yeah. Like she's finally getting what's going on and then maybe she will rise from the ashes. Mm-hmm, like a Phoenix perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> and um, become like a, I don't know. Like it's, I don't know what would become. I don't know what happens after this movie ends. There's also that weird guy in the audience, the blonde guy, who's like, he kind of stabs uh, with the. He's got. They've all got the, the swan heads, the dancers. Yeah. And like he's got one. He like. He ends up with like blood on his hands. And he wipes it on this one girl, and he like stands up and kind of twirls, and it's almost like is it sort of like this guy's gonna be famous now? Like who's? Cause they're, they're focusing on this one guy a lot, <laughs> in the audience. Yeah, well, I think it's just, like, the audience... I mean, in that last scene, it really is just, like... The just audience... a microcosm of the entire industry of just, like... The the audience just will latch onto you and praise you and then just, like, tear you down and kill you and, yeah, and dance in your over. blood. And they're just, like, you know, it, it's just... Your death becomes a part of the entertainment. Yeah. And your, you know, the tragedy of your life becomes a part of the entertainment. And, uh... They're all, they'll all, the audience will all revel in it and will participate in it. And it's all just a, it's all just a big show. And De Palma was very interested in the uh, relationship between performers and their audience. Like, um, a few years before this, he did a film called Dionysus in 69, which was, um, basically a documentary about a play like he just he filmed a performance of a play uh the euripides play the um how do you how do you pronounce that i'm sorry i'm not i didn't point to anything (laughs) i just asked max how to pronounce the word that i was looking at in my head Um, the b-a-c-c-h-a-e is it the bacchus but it's like plural like the bacay the bacay it's the euripides Uh, anyway whatever it's about all that um (laughs) uh they did a live show of this play which is what plays are um and he filmed it and he also filmed the audience responding to it and there was also um the performers interacting with the audience during the play and he used split screen so that somebody watching the movie could watch the play and the audience in addition to like shots of the audience interacting with the performers and stuff and William Finley who plays Winslow Leach we, we talked about him briefly when talking about the funhouse um and that weird looking blonde guy who's in the audience at the end with the blood on him they were both in that uh production um but yeah because at the end of Phantom of the Paradise kind of like what I've read about that uh, Dionysus production they're like the audience is like up on the stage just taking over everything and they're all you can't really tell who is the audience and who is the performer because they're all just on stage. (laughs) But that's... uh, I don't know, because that's... They seem to have an issue with the performers being performers, sort of, like putting on costumes and taking on personas and not just singing it straight from the heart like a a classic singer-songwriter type person. Like a paul williams sure 
which <laughs> is part of the reason why he's just so perfectly cast in the movie. And I mean, aside from the fact that he can write these amazing songs, but like his pre, he, like he has a physical presence in the movie. Yeah. And it's part of the reason why he's so great because he is somebody who is like literally like written hits for other people and has had, had you know has gone through all of that but you were saying something else and i kind of derailed it ah, i'm not sure I, it well it, it's i'm confused by what the movie thinks of the audience still because it's like there's this notion of uh like I'm trying to think of how to word this. Like, every few years, there's sort of, like, this thing where it's like, oh, things are getting too out of hand. So, like, in the in the, the mid and late 70s, you've got, like, punk. Where it's just these people show up on... Well, American punk, at least. It's these people show up on stage wearing the clothes they've been wearing all day and sing some songs. Which is, like, juxtaposed with, like, the bigger acts at the time who have these elaborate stage shows and costumes and things. So, at the end of Phantom of the Paradise, you have the audience and the performers intermingling, and you can't really tell the difference between them. I'm just confused by the intentions of it. Like, how, how do you read that? Well, I think it, kind of what I was saying before about, like, it's, it's the microcosm of the entire entertainment industry, where it's, you know, the audience feverishly requires all of this like you know fresh blood and the the horrible things that we're seeing on stage with winslow killing swan and swan's you know horrible mangled burnt up face and winslow crawling along the ground it that's just all a part of the entertainment but if you were in that audience and you were at that show and you had no way of knowing that that wasn't part of the show right yeah, they, they, you would. You, know. you would probably. Resp- you might not jump on the stage and start stabbing people or rubbing blood all over yourself, but wouldn't you be like, "Oh, this is interesting that they're doing this." Well, I think that's where the movie goes into like abstraction. You know, like I don't like it, the whole movie isn't really portrayed in the most like realistic way. No, it's, not at all. It's very like you know, almost. Uh, is you know, it's very broad strokes. So I don't think that the people that the audience are. Sp- we're supposed to think of them as like real people, you know, they're just like, they're just the, the, they're the, us, the so. seething mad <laughs> the horde of, yeah, exactly. They're people who are enjoying what we're enjoying. And like the whole, like when beef dies on stage, they assume it's part of the show Yeah, and they're cheering. And then even as they're carrying his corpse outside, they're like beef, beef, beef. And like, that's an interesting part where they're like, the curtain when beef dies the curtain closes and everybody's freaking out and they're like phoenix go sing something the curtain opens and the the audience is like right there yeah and they're like like, oh there's a random girl here let's all calm down and listen to this it's it's an odd moment it's i don't know it gives her a lot of power it's like just well clearly she's such a a presence Mm. that they'll just immediately be like oh this is gonna be good attention yeah and she she is great I love Jessica Harper. Yeah, now is that her actual singing voice? Yes. Because, holy crap. She also sings in Shock Treatment as Janet. And so why didn't she have a career as a singer, did she? She has some, like, uh, she did a few albums of, like, children's music in, like, the 90s. 
it's cr- it's just crazy to me because like yeah. just based on this movie i'm just like man she could have just like been putting out albums herself yeah she and her acting is great too she hasn't really done that much like i've only seen you know there's this shock treatment she's the lead in suspiria which i just saw on the big screen the other day and yeah holy shit. we didn't uh, talk about that it was this new 4k restoration i didn't see it yeah. I, I wasn't there with you unfortunately but uh how yeah. was it um it was beautiful and what i love is that all right so i have suspiria on dvd that's the way that i like i got used to it i watched it a few times and i was like okay it's good i don't get why everybody's so like head over heels in love with this movie it's a good movie but whatever you know um and then a few years ago i saw it at proctor's on a huge screen and i was like oh this movie is great and then this past week i saw it on that same screen in an even newer restoration for the 40th anniversary and i was like holy shit this is one of the greatest horror films ever made oh my god and like <laughs> and and the rest of the horror community is like uh yeah <laughs> i just i don't know it's like yeah yeah you need it's i hate saying this because people don't always get the chance to see every movie that comes out on the big screen yeah but if you get the chance to see suspiria on the big screen with a good sound system um, because I, like, my chair was, like, shaking at certain points of that. <laughs> um, ah, oh, it's just so great. And just, Jessica Harper has just one of the best faces. And seeing her giant face was just wonderful. <laughs> because she has that certain kind of balance between, like, an innocence and, like, she seems sort of wise beyond her years at the same time. Yeah. She, and she has like this wit to her this kind of like uh i don't know like she she always seems very smart like she's got some wise cracks and stuff and like she carries that attitude with her even in something like suspiria where she is playing like a very innocent naive girl but i remember watching um shock treatment with my cousin Nicole when she was she was like nine maybe eight years old and for some reason i was just like let's watch the sequel to rocky horror fired up the vcr threw that in and she was just like oh my god this girl is so beautiful like that's that was her takeaway from watching shock treatment was just how beautiful jessica harper was (laughs) can't say i disagree (laughs) i mean the the scene when uh when she auditions in phantom of the paradise Mm. and she we get the full force of her voice for the first time. Yeah. I forget what's, what's the name of the song that she's singing. It's like, um, special to me, special to me. That's right. And it's sort of like an upbeat kind of like, you know, pop rock song yeah. for the time. And, uh, with like a little bit of a country. Yeah. Bent yep. To it. A little, a little, a little country edge. I mean, she, it's, she just, it's just knocks it out of the park. I mean, it's just crazy. Like, how she's because the way that even she like is dancing it's such like a weird kind of like quirky thing that she's doing when she's dancing yeah that's <laughs> but i love it like so at the much. very end of the song yeah the i dance, love it with like the flapping her arms <laughs> it's so good but it's just like and it's so unique yeah. and i'm just like she has such a such an interesting and i like that presence it, that sort of comes back at the very end when she's like going up to the stage like for but she thinks she's about to get married <laughs> um and she starts like flapping her arms as she's walking up to the stage and it's like oh remember this this is that thing i do guys <laughs> uh, 
Well, it's kind of like or like uh, when Beef comes out, um, and he's doing his, uh, uh, you know, on stage. He comes out of the coffin, and he starts dancing, and it's like he's literally like flapping his arms like a chicken. Yeah, that's a, or maybe like a swan. Oh, maybe a swan. Yeah, yeah. maybe more of the swan motif that's laced throughout the film, or it was. And he's just making a complete <laughs> mockery of the of the music. <laughs> In the original script. Which, like, there's a lot of special features um, on both discs of the the Scream Factory or Shout Factory disc, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, It'll show, like, uh, bits and pieces of, like, the original shooting script. And in the script, he's referred to as Captain Beef, which sounds a little bit like... Yeah, who, like, Alice Cooper was another uh, part of, like, Frank Zappa's circle. And I don't know a lot of captain beefheart music i love his uh his first album safe as milk and his singing style is a little bit like beefs as far as it's like it is more screaming than singing right although it's with captain beefheart it's also like it's beautiful screaming and very powerful screaming <laughs> uh, do you know much captain beefheart yeah i safe as milk uh trout, Mask trout yep, yeah, exactly, that's the yep. one everybody talks about that i i just i don't know I bought it once, and I opened it up, and it was a different disc. And they wouldn't let me return it. <laughs> <laughs> was it, like, used at FYE or something? No, it was through Amazon. Oh. Usually they're good about returns. It, what, what was it? It was because it was used through Amazon. It was, like, uh. if it was Amazon themselves, it would have been fine. But it was this other... They were like, well, you need to send it in its original packaging. And I'm like, I threw that out. Like, I don't... And then it was... I don't know. Anyway, completely different topic. <laughs> um... But are there any other, like, I don't know much about Captain Beefheart. Yeah, I don't know much about him, uh, you know, you know, in the his yeah. personal story or whatever. I didn't know if he had, like, a stage show or anything. I mean, yeah, I don't know. this is all, like, bits and pieces of different rock stars thrown together. Yeah, like so, Meatloaf. Like... And I don't know about... Because well, this that's is the thing... before Rocky Horror. Well, that's the so... thing that I thought of, because I'm like, okay, you've got this beef character. He feels like it's you're in, like, Rocky Horror. And in Rocky Horror, you've got Meatloaf. Yeah. So, yeah, I, did, I mean... I mean, but that's... I didn't know if Meatloaf was already sort of going by that time. At this point, people would have... If anybody knew who Meatloaf was, they would have been like, oh, that's that guy who plays Eddie and Dr. Scott in that show, Rocky Horror, wherever it's going on on Broadway or something. Like... Because he was in the stage show, and then he... In the movie, he only plays Eddie. He doesn't play Dr. Scott. Uh, and then after that is when he does his album with Jim Steinman, Bat Out of Hell, which mm. I think there's, like, eight songs on it, six of which were, like, huge hits. <laughs> I haven't listened to Meatloaf in a long time. I could go for some Meatloaf. I haven't eaten Meatloaf in a long time. I could, I, I could go for some Meatloaf. Oh, my God. As soon as we're done with the show, let's go eat some Meatloaf and listen to some Meatloaf. But anyway, even outside of this movie, I feel like several of the songs, if they had been released as, like, radio singles, they they could have been pretty successful. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, we were just talking about a couple of years later, like, when Meatloaf becomes, like, a recording artist and, like, a very popular recording artist the music on that Bad Out of Hell album is very similar to, like, certain parts of Phantom of the Paradise. It has that sort of, like, sort of a retro 50s feel, even though it's very 70s sounding, which is also in Rocky Horror. So it's, it's very of that that time. 
I don't know. I just don't. I don't understand why this wasn't a, a hit. Yeah, I don't know. Apparently, um, the movie was successful in Winnipeg. Yes. <laughs> just randomly, it was like a huge hit in Winnipeg, where like there is now uh, a convention. I don't know if it happens annually or irregularly or whatever, but there was like a there was like a phantom fest where it was it was a whole convention about phantom of the paradise in winnipeg like in a couple years ago i would go to a a phantom of the paradise festival i wonder what goes on i wonder if they do uh like shadow casts or anything like a rocky horror type thing like if they just have people come out and perform in front of in front of the screen or anything like that like well that's the i mean that's the thing is i just it seems like, uh, man, if they could do a Phantom of the Paradise stage show, like, imagine like a Broadway show. Yeah. You get Paul Williams back to write maybe a couple couple new songs for it, you know, to fill out some of the... Like narrative type songs. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, yeah. That'd be pretty awesome. Let's do it. Let's start that Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what Paul Williams charges to write a Broadway musical. <laughs> But we're going to need to raise that. I mean, it, just based on the interview that I watched on that Blu-ray, it seems like he has very, very fond, a, a great fondness for the film and for all the songs that he wrote. Um, specifically, the uh, the Old Souls, he says, is one of his all-time favorite songs that he's ever written. Yeah. Like one of maybe three songs that he's like, these are like my, my favorites. I really wonder, I mean, Brian De Palma directed the movie. and Did he write it as well? Yeah, um, they go into this on the disc. It was like the original draft was him and a woman whose name I don't recall. And then she, um, I don't remember the details of it. It's like she had to work on something else or she didn't want to go forward with the project. So he had to like make sure he took out everything she contributed to it and sort of fill in those holes himself. Huh, that's weird. Because he wouldn't be able to credit her on it. And then, um... So the first draft was, like, him with someone whose name I don't remember, and then he rewrote it himself. And it was, like... At one point it was Phantom of the Fillmore, um, but Bill Graham, who ran the the Fillmore auditoriums, he was like, no, you can't do that. And then it was just Phantom, and then Universal, who owned the rights to Phantom of the Opera was like no like i'm pretty sure the novel was in the public domain the original gasoline i was just gonna say uh but because in phantom of the paradise winslow leach starts out as a relatively normal looking person um and then becomes like hideously disfigured that's more from the 40s like claude rains version because in all the other versions it's just like here's this disfigured person yeah and he's like born that in the novel he's just he's always is that way um and they were basically saying, like, well, you took that from us, so clearly this is a... You're doing a, a remake of our 1943 Claude Rains movie. And so they were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll make sure it's not just Phantom, it's Phantom of the Paradise, and it's, like, not... And, oh, and also the, the comic strip, The Phantom. They had issues with uh, that, too. Yeah, the guy yeah. with the purple suit. Mm-hmm. I think that they turned into a Billy Because Bay that's, ex- movie, that's exactly what you think of when you 
<laughs> yeah. Watch this movie. <laughs> there was also a, a Murnau film called Phantom in the 20s that I'm pretty sure nobody tried to sue anybody over anything with that. Um, but they, they should have pointed that. Be like, no, it's an homage to this other movie. And it, it seems they like, should sue you, yeah. comic people. And it seems like they've, they had those problems all throughout making the movie. Yeah, because then there's Swan Song. <laughs> there's the whole record label. Because we got Paul Williams, is, he's playing a character called Swan, and he's like the, the head of this whole empire of you know recording empire yeah and his company was supposed to be called swan songs kind of like how I, he's kind of a, a spoof of phil specter right and his yeah, label i think was Phillies records so it's sort of like his own name and then uh somewhere in the making of the movie they had filmed it all yeah and then led zeppelin got into the fray and said hey we just We've got a record label called Swan Songs. And I wonder if the people in the band even were aware of that. Because their manager, I think his name was Peter Grant, he was the one who officially was, like, head of Swan Songs, and he was, like, he was the one who sued. And I'm wondering if, like, people have brought this up to, like, Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, or whoever, and been like, oh, did you guys have an issue with Phantom of the Paradise? And they're just like, like what? what is that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, so they had to, like, in post, retroactively uh, cover up most of the iconography of of the swan songs because it's it's plastered all over the place everywhere and, and they replaced it with death records and it's painfully apparent on the blu-ray that yeah. my dvd that i watched for years it was like i could tell there's something up with certain shots like the opening marquee where it shows yeah, shows says the juicy, juicy fruits, fruits. Yeah. i was just like oh that's a weird shot uh, but I didn't really realize until watching the Blu-ray that it's not quite lined up, right? Yeah, there's there's a lot of text that is kind of jittering around. Yeah, because it's just covering up something. And I, I, you know, today you with with today's technology, you could probably go in there and like clean that up. Yeah, they probably do that like all the time. Special edition style. Oh, with this movie. Yeah, I with, thought you meant like if this. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Today. today, you know, it would be way easier to do. Oh. I, I'm saying like you know, if you could take this movie and like kind of clean that up but then you're getting into you know you're getting into the weeds of, of all well that. i mean the, the original footage still exists and the special features it shows like oh this is what it originally looked like before we covered it up hmm. so they have they, so they could potentially do some sort of like a restoration where it's like maybe yeah. na- maybe now you could get away with it just being like it's just one songs you know yeah because it's far removed from that other record label or whatever but does, i mean i don't does even that know even still exist or i don't know well, there's, they still, like, re-release the Led Zeppelin albums every few yeah, years. True. I'm assuming. It's true. Anytime somebody wants to cover a Led Zeppelin song... But it's not like Led Zeppelin's active right now, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, it's, like, Apple Records. Yeah. There's like, the I, Apple I feel Records. like there'd be issues with that. I mean, and I understand it, because it is, like, it would cause confusion. Like, if... if in this movie, the record label was, you know, Apple Records. It would be like, oh, how is this affiliated with the Beatles' Apple Records? But then years later, there there was, and maybe still is, a record label called Death Records. Yeah, yeah. And So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's all confusing. But I really wonder, like... It seems like... I mentioned before that like Paul Williams was kind of like the perfect choice for this movie, and I wonder how much of an influence he had on the actual story of things, mm. because a lot because it, it, it's interesting that he's cast in the sort of villainous, uh, almost devilish role of uh, of Swan, 
who is taking advantage of all these uh, these artists when he himself and I don't I don't know of any specific things in his career where maybe he was taken advantage of in that sort of way but I mean he was a guy who was like writing songs to be sung by other people to be based and many of them became hits like with the Carpenters um, Three Dog Night and uh, you know a bunch of others the scene that I think about is when when Swan is in his uh, office and he has that big round desk and they're trying to find because like so Winslow has written his cantata and they're like okay now we just need to find like the right sound for this person to uh, for the, for this music yeah. and so he's in this dark room and he's in this round desk and like these these spotlights turn on and there's like you know there's like a country band and they're, they're they play the song and he's like no no and then like you know it sort of turns and then another spotlight opens up and it's like, you and know, there's like black curtains in there that are also moving. So like people are kind of like being revealed as it goes around. And yeah. I yeah. love that set. I love it's all so the great. sets. Yeah. It's so movie. great. Um, and it's just sort of this like cynical view of what goes on in the high towers at these record labels, you know, where it's just like, you know, Oh, we have this song and like, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to give it to, you know, then that's where beef comes in. And it's like, Oh yes, this is the sound. Um, and it's just devoid of any sort of like, you know, creative uh, the creative energy of the artist who originally wrote it. Um, and so I, you know, I just I can't help but wonder like if Paul Williams ever really felt that way about you know because he writes this song, he hands it off, and then it turns up on the radio, and he's just like, well, what have they done to this? You know, <laughs> why why would they do it that way? Obviously, somebody like Paul Williams is a success story in, like, the music industry, but, you know, there are plenty of people who, I mean, they're probably, I mean, gosh, how many, how many real-life Winslows are there out there who just had their shit just taken away from them, and they were just powerless to do anything about it, and it just went on to, you know, become a hit, and then they just, you know, were left with nothing? I mean, it when you think of all the people who actually achieve fame and success who then have that done to them like the Beatles and the rights to their songs <laughs> yeah just like stripped like, away and so yeah it's just like, like how can yeah, if, yeah just... no if, if they can't even get through that then like the average person is fucked and there's really no point in going into the music industry so everybody just put down your guitar and go home but of course this extends beyond like the music industry it's like any sort of creative field where you are sort of like creating this thing and going to this massive industry that you're trying to break into, whether it be like the film industry or acting or whatever. And I think this would be a good point to talk about early Brian De Palma. Not to interrupt. No, well, that's kind of where I was, that's kind of where I was leading to because it's like, I'm sure that, you know, Brian De Palma had, I mean, you had mentioned uh, his struggles with the studios in the past. Do you know much about like his uh, early life or early career or anything? Like, no, not really, not at all. He was born on September 11th, huh. which is just the. If is you he... watch a lot of his movies, it's just the perfect birthday for him. He's just a lucky guy like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, I think 1940. I think he's like eight eight days older than Paul Williams or something. Um, oh no, kidding! Yeah. It's the fun fact I found out on my phone a few minutes ago. <laughs> um, so when he was like a teenager. I guess uh, his father 
was he he was cheating on his mother. He was like having an affair at like I think he he was a doctor or a dentist or something. He had an office, and he was cheating on her at this place. And so, the Palma was you know naturally felt bad for his mother, but there was no he had to he wanted to like prove it. You know he wanted to help his mother get like you know, away from this person and stuff. So he actually, like, got some equipment and set up, like, a surveillance system. And he caught his father cheating on his mother. And he had evidence. And he was able to, like, help with the divorce. This is a teenager. This would have been in the 50s. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, and there's there's a lot of surveillance going on. And definitely in Phantom of the Paradise and throughout his filmography, especially uh, uh, Blowout with John Travolta and Nancy Allen which that's an amazing film. Um, it's sort of like blow up plus the conversation equals blow out. Anyway, um, so let's see. He went to, he studied, he didn't study filmmaking in school. He studied science. He was a science major at uh, Columbia. And then he, um, he went to Sarah Lawrence and he started getting involved in like theater there. And he made his first uh, feature film in 1963 but it wasn't released until 1969 um, and that uh, featured a young Robert De Niro uh, he co-directed that with a couple people from the school including um, one of the professors there who's I forget his first name but his last name was Leach and that's where a decade later they got the name Winslow Leach from huh. sort of like a tribute to him because um, I was wondering about that, because, like, Leech is just such, like, non-flattering... Yeah. <laughs> you would think that, like, a name like Leech would go to somebody like Swan, right. who is actually leeching off of people, but, yeah. you know, the starving artist <laughs> being like, oh, no, he's a leech. Yeah, it just seemed... I, I was curious about that. But that makes more sense now. Yeah, he did, like, a few uh, short films, and he, like, won some, like, awards for short films and stuff. He did uh, another feature, Murder a la Mod, with William Finley. Um, and it's... It's a very interesting film. It's available through Something Weird Video. Um, and it, it, it actually kind of fits in with sort of their aesthetic. It's like a very like low-budget horror movie type thing. But it, it's, uh, it's the beginnings of like showing off his obsession with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and it, it sort of it shows like a murder from several different points of view throughout the film. Um, it's not a great movie. But it's a very interesting movie, and you can tell, like, wow, this guy's got some great ideas. And then he did Greetings in 1968, which was the first film to be rated X. Uh, and that was... The a, very first film. The dude. very first film to be rated X. Huh. And that, again, was uh, another comedy with Robert De Niro. So what was the rating for? Violence or nudity or sex or all of the above? Uh, there's some nudity. It's a different time. <laughs> It's uh, it's like about as mild as like Midnight Cowboy. It's like that kind of an X-rated movie. Ah, gotcha. It's not yeah, like yeah. yeah. Um, and because it was a big hit, it was re-released later with an R, just like Midnight Cowboy, and A Clockwork Orange, and like other films like that. Because if you're successful enough, you don't have to have an X, which was a lot of people's problems with the MPAA over the years. Yes, but that was uh, that was actually a pretty big. Uh, hit, especially considering they just spent like a few thousand dollars making it, <laughs> and um, 
that actually got him some attention. He ended up in this book called The Film Director as Superstar by Joseph Gelmus, which came out in, I think, 1970. And it's sort of like at the beginning of that moment when everybody's noticing how, like, oh, there's all these new guys in Hollywood. And, like, Brian De Palma was profiled in there, and um, Francis Ford Coppola, um, and a few more, like, established, like, underground filmmakers like Andy Warhol and Robert Downey Sr. Um, but it's interesting reading the interview with Brian De Palma in that book. which He was interviewed in 1969 as he was preparing to make the sequel to Greetings, which turned out to be called Hi, Mom. Which, in which Robert De Niro is, like, the star of that film. And, like Greetings and Phantom of the Paradise, it also has Garrett Graham, who plays Beef. Uh, he's, he's in both those. Um, but he's talking about, like, how, like, he kind of wants to be seen as, like, the American Godard at that time. That those are from his words? Yeah. Huh. And, like, he was, how, he was a big influence and stuff. And then, like... But he's also, you know, they start talking about his future plans, and he was like, well, you know, you know, I also am a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock, and, you know, I would like to try, like, a thriller or something. And, of course, that is basically, like, the majority of his career are, is all these, like, Hitchcockian thrillers. Um, but, yeah, so after the success of Greetings and um, Hi, Mom was... And it, it was also a little successful, but it wasn't as big as Greetings. That actually, I went back and watched some just certain moments from some of his earlier films in preparation for this episode, and there's a sequence in that where Robert De Niro's character kind of like joins up with this like theater troupe, and they do this um, like a performance piece. It's like an environmental theater piece where. Um, they go out in the streets and they're just like going up to all these white people and saying like, do you want to know about the black experience and stuff? And Robert De Niro is like, well, him and uh, Garrett Graham are the only uh, white people in this acting troupe, but they basically get these white theater goers to like go to this old building. And then they like put like black paint on their faces and they treat them like black people in the worst possible ways. One woman is almost raped. They're all like shoved around and beaten. De Niro comes in dressed as a cop. He sees um, one of the actors trying to rape the white woman who's in blackface. And so she, he just starts yelling at the white people in blackface, blaming them, even though he's seeing what's happening right in front of him. And it's, and it's shot in like this handheld black and white way, like a newsreel, like sort of way. And it's, it's very... It's nothing like the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is all, like, in color and just, like, a regular movie. And then there's, like, this one scene that's very difficult to watch. But anyway, after that, he does Get to Know Your Rabbit, which was supposed to be his, like, you know, his big Hollywood break. Um, and he was hired to direct this other person's screenplay. Uh, it had Tommy Smothers and Orson Welles in it, and uh, Catherine Ross, like, fresh off The Graduate, and um, he did not have a good time on it. He clashed with the studio several times. There's this weird moment at the beginning where, like, it starts off with Tommy Smothers and John Astin, Gomez Adams, talking to each other, and then they walk away from each other, and all of a sudden it becomes a split-screen sequence where you're following each character. But then it starts, like, cutting back and forth between them. But the way it's set up, 
like Tommy Smothers will be like on the far left and John Ass will be on the far right. And you're like, it seems clearly like this was set up to be a split screen, but the studio got nervous mm. and they sort of like made him just do it normal, which kind of, it takes away some of the suspense because we're told that there's a bomb that's going to go off in the building. Like one of them knows the other one doesn't know yet. And it's like, I don't know. It doesn't come off. And there were a lot of compromises he had to make. And in the end, the film was taken away from him and re-edited. And it wasn't a pleasant experience, but it encouraged him to just go back to being an independent filmmaker. And he got with producer Ed Pressman and he did Sisters, which is a really great early 70s horror film in like a very Hitchcockian style. And he gets to do a great split screen sequence, which I showed you earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he continued from there doing Phantom of the Paradise. Which also included a split screen sequence. Which also includes a bomb. Which, uh, in addition to all of his normal Hitchcock references, that, that sequence definitely owes a lot to Wells's Touch of Evil. And this the, the split screen thing, it also pops up in Carrie. Yes. It's it's really interesting that he kind of just like he latched onto that, and was just really uh, trying to find ways to see. It, it, I mean, it's an interesting effect because it's like, say in the in the in Phantom of the Paradise, the sequence in question is, uh, you know, we're seeing the, the beach bums on stage and they're <laughs> doing their their uh, their their best Beach Boys impression. Um, and meanwhile, we're seeing backstage on the other side of the screen. So it's all in real time, these two moments happening. And we're watching as this uh, this car, which has a bomb in the trunk. It's like a prop car, like a stage car. It has a bomb in, in, the, in the trunk of the car that Winslow has put in there. And we're watching it as it's uh, getting brought out onto stage. And, uh, you know, the audience knows that the bomb's in there. We can hear it ticking and time's going on. And we're waiting for basically these two moments to collide where both sides of the screen reach the same moment. Mm. And then that's when the bomb explodes. Um, and yeah, cutting between if you were, if you were to actually just edit the, that scene without the split screen and just editing between the two, I don't, I, it definitely would not be as effective. And that's, I think could be said also about um, the sequence I showed you in Sisters. Yeah. And in Carrie, it's like you're seeing like the cause and effect of like Carrie's powers as she's like getting her vengeance on everybody. And you could easily just show Carrie just like looking off and then cut to somebody being killed or something. Right. Or like whereas we see her, you know, she looks one way and then like, you know, like the doors slam shut and look another way and the windows shut. But it's... It, it helps with the pace of it. Yeah. And it's... I don't know. It's it's not something that most filmmakers ever use. And in the example of Phantom of the Paradise, it's it's cool because it's like... On one side of the screen, we're watching this like candy-coated... Just like, you know, beach song. And it's just going the whole time. Yeah. And you can watch that. And meanwhile, we're seeing... Literally seeing behind the scenes, which is this ugly kind of... It, it it also works not just in the in the uh, suspense of the bomb, but it also works in thematically about like oh this is what the audience sees on this side, 
just the end result. Behind the scene, there's this, you know, overweight sleazeball. Philbin. Who is like, you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, you got to get up there. And this, and this actor is like, I'm not feeling so, or the singer is not feeling so well. And he's like, oh, well, you got to take more drugs or whatever. And then he's like commenting on these women in these bikinis who are just like, oh, you know, you're not like pretty enough, whatever he's saying. He's like jostling their breasts and stuff. Yeah, it's just like, it's just like the the stuff that the audience usually doesn't see. Yeah. The dark side of, oh, you like this like silly little beach song about carburetors, man, and the upholstery of your car? <laughs> like, this is what has to be done to like make for that to be what the thing is you're enjoying. And uh, meanwhile, there's this bomb that's about to go off. And it's, uh, yeah, really, really effective. Mm. And also, I mean, just the in the in the tension of the bomb going off, because we're not cutting around, it's like we know that everything's in real time. So it's like we're not cutting away from from uh, it just it, it has like a linear nature to it where you're just anticipating it, I think, even more. And then the scene that that you showed me with in Sisters, the tension there is uh, there's been a murder that's happened in this in this apartment uh and the witness and the police are coming up to the apartment to investigate and we're seeing the the, the frustrating police officers who are refusing to just go up there and meanwhile yeah. we're seeing what's going on in the apartment and they're furiously cleaning up and trying to like hide the body and do all this sort of stuff and because it's all in real time it creates this sense of like it's happening like right now like you can just go over there like we can see it happening and like uh and if you're cutting between it's it's uh it does this almost subconscious thing of well we don't exactly know how much time is passing you know because yeah, we don't know what they're doing how much they've already cleaned and exactly everything. and but when you can see like oh look at all this blood there's no way that they can clean it up in time but then in real time we see them actually do it yeah. It's it's much more uh, the tension there is much uh, higher and like it can definitely be done well without the split screen. I mean, of it's course, basically rear course. window. Yeah, you yeah totally. But, you can you can uh, and it's like it's been done many many times in other movies. But it's just there's this other tool that people just don't want to use of like split screen. Like there are so many instances where people could do something split screen, and then I feel like it's one of those things where. Like you mentioned earlier, somebody might see it and just be like, oh, it's just a gimmick. Right. But it's like, well, so is cutting from a person's face to what they're reacting to. That's a gimmick. That's just a something you can do in film to get a reaction. But it's like, not the way that things are usually done. It doesn't look like a sitcom, so it's a gimmick. It's, <laughs> it's artsy. The camera is placed in a certain it's position pre- it's to give meaning, and therefore it's artsy. It's pretentious, Tim. It's so frustrating that everybody everybody wants everything to look the same. It seems, like um, like anytime there's like some sort of new way of doing something, it has to be a gimmick, like three D. Why can't we just use three D as like, oh, here's this new thing. Like we got that sound, we got that color. Here's this third dimension, and it's like the, there are some people who do yeah. that, and then a the, lot of people are still seeing it as like, oh, it's just a stupid gimmick. Well, the problem is because you have to wear the glasses. I firmly believe if the glasses weren't a part of it, you wouldn't think of it as a gimmick because you're not because the audience isn't required to do anything different. Yeah. Like that's where it starts to feel like, "Oh, what what I, I got to put this on my face? I got to wear this thing, you know?" Like 
then it starts to feel like because then the the audience members are sitting there feeling like an asshole <laughs> because they feel stupid wearing this like crappy looking plastic thing on their face and the technology just isn't quite there yet you know but once 3d becomes able to you know you can just sit in a theater or watch at home on your tv yeah. without having to wear anything special without having to do anything different then it will truly i think become something that isn't viewed as a gimmick because then you know every display screen on your phone everything will just start to just be 3d and that's just the way things are going to be is somebody somewhere working on that that we know of i mean i'm sure somebody is somewhere but oh yeah like, no i think like there's a thing people are talking about i'm sure i'm i mean uh well that's what that i mean nintendo released a uh a handheld gaming device, the 3DS, back in 2011, and that is a screen that doesn't require classes, and you get a 3D effect on it. So it does exist. Yeah. But you can't watch movies on that device yet? You can. Oh. Like, you can, uh, like, um... So if you, if you put Avatar on your 3DS... Yeah, no, it actually looks really good. I mean, the problem is it's a tiny screen, you know, like, and you can't really replicate that in, like, a big setting, like a home screen TV or, like, a theater. Just put your face up to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and even then, like, I mean, I never really had too many problems with my 3DS, but I know a lot of people uh, complained about, like, oh, you have to have it in a specific position, and you can't, once you start to move it, it kind of gets weird. But, like, I never really well, had it on too the much. Wall. Yeah. Well, they actually released a uh, a new version of it that has a camera that tracks your eye movements, so it knows where you're where you're looking and at what angle the uh, the device is at. So if you slightly tilt the screen, it knows that your eyes are one way. So it adjusts the image to always face your eyes. It's very strange, but it actually works really well. I wonder if any of that information is shared with Nintendo. Like they just have pictures of everybody's eyes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> there's the giant eyeball database um but the, yeah that's the that's the future that we're going to be living in in 10 20 30 years from now where you know 3d movies and tv and and phones and everything is just going to be standard and i bet people will still not want to see things with split screen sequences because it'll still seem <laughs> gimmicky <artsy laughs> and pretentious yeah uh, i don't know um Yeah, so, let's see. After Phantom of Paradise, let's see, De Palma, he did Obsession, which was basically a remake of Vertigo. Um, and it's basically like, okay, yes, I'm in love with Hitchcock. I'm just going to keep going with it. And then Carrie, uh, The Fury, which I really enjoy. That was... That might be his first movie where it's like... It seems like he's basically just taking like all of like cinema and like just like fisting us with it sort of furiously furiously fisting us furiously with the cinema fear. i don't know i don't know what i'm saying right now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if anything that i just said made sense um that you know what no body double in 1984 that's more like being fisted by brian de palma but yeah, so like after like he he went back to Sarah Lawrence and did a movie called Home Movies with Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen, his wife, um, which he just used students at Sarah Lawrence as his crew, 
and it was like uh like he was sort of like a teacher there and just making this little movie with them but he just happened to have nancy allen and kirk douglas in it um, yeah that'd be cool uh i don't know more films should be kind of just made like that you yeah know, use the slave labor of students you know? yeah it's like they do it for the experience yeah they do it for <laughs> for credit <laughs> um and he did dress to kill which is a great movie um and let's see blowout and then there's this huge movie that everybody in the world seems to have seen but i, I keep not watching it for whatever reason uh scarface the 80s version of scarface it's this huge phenomena yeah that i just i don't know i've never seen it either i think we discussed this on a previous episode probably the carry episode perhaps the carry and we were like we should do it on the show because neither of us have ever seen it before and it is this whole thing that i feel like is kind of yeah pass me by it's it is a cultural touchstone i own it on dvd <laughs> i just haven't gotten around to watching it have you seen the original scarface i have yeah i would <laughs> of course you would <laughs> it's a good movie it was. <laughs> yeah. howard hawks i'm not i'm actually not a huge fan of the 30s scarface i think it's okay I don't get what everybody is so crazy about it. With like, I don't know. Like, um, well, they're not crazy about that one. They're crazy about the Al Pacino. Well, no, different groups of people are crazy about the '30s one, <laughs> and then there's all these other people who are crazy about the. 80s and you're just one. ambivalent about it all. I well, maybe I'll watch the '80s one and be like, "Oh my god, I understand life now." I feel like at this point, it's almost like it can never live up to. I can never feel the way that a lot of people feel about Scarface. You know, I mean, what I mean, it's not one of those movies that shows up on like greatest movie lists or anything. It's yeah, just a I movie that a lot of yeah, people because it's, it's not like about. The Godfather or something like that. It's just it's like the image of Pacino in that movie is everywhere, and like the yeah. whole like say hello to my little friend. That's my Al Pacino impression. Say hello to my little friend. Yeah, <laughs> um, like that's like this huge thing, which. And the image of him just, like, planting his face in a mound of coke. Yeah. But I hope those scenes aren't, like, right near the end, because that's, like, what I know of the movie. <laughs> that's that's what I know of the movie, yeah. too. <laughs> um, but so that was a pretty successful movie. And then he did Body Double, which was just, like, that is the cinematic fisting, I would say, where it's, like, all Hitchcock thrown together. It's basically every single kind of filmmaking that exists in one movie. And um, I love it for its audaciousness. And I'm sorry, audacity. Bodaciousness. <laughs> it's bo- it is bodacious, yes. Um, but it's like every genre, there's even like porn and music videos. Like in the middle of it, all of a sudden, there's a music video for um, Relax, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song. Oh. Frankie goes to Hollywood shows up in it like it's <laughs> it's just it's amazing and it's ridiculous at the same it's but it's understandable why a lot of people hate that movie but I, I love it and then, um yeah like, let's see he did Wise Guy he did The Untouchables which was a huge hit and um that I believe was the last time he worked with De Niro De Niro had a pretty small role in it he plays Al Capone um they hadn't really worked together since they did like the underground comedies in the sixties, basically. And then he did casualties of war, which came at like the tail end of that big, like Vietnam cycle of films in the late eighties, like platoon and full metal jacket. Um, and then he basically 
any momentum his career had kind of ended in 1990 with the release of The Bonfire of the Vanities, which is one of those movies that I, I always fall for this. When I hear something is like this big flop, both like financially and critically, I'm like, you're you like, know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I want to find the, the diamond in this. Uh, and I, w- I did it wrong, I think. What I did is this one summer, it was like the summer of The Bonfire of the Vanities for Tim. It was uh, the summer of 2007. <laughs> I read the book Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe, which is still one of the greatest books I've ever read. And then I immediately watched the movie right after. <laughs> yeah, that's... You can you, you gotta pick and choose. Be like, and... do I want to watch this as a part of Brian De Palma's filmography as a film? Or do I want to watch it comparing it to the book and you if know. i hadn't read the book i might like the movie better yeah, but i still wouldn't think it's it's just not a good movie it just as its own thing and then after i finished the movie i immediately read the book the devil's candy which is about the making of the bonfire of the vanities and it basically goes it came out like maybe a year or two after the movie did and she interviewed everybody and it just goes through like here's what went wrong here Here's where they fucked up over here. Here's, like, here's when they decided, like, oh, this old, like, old white racist judge? Yeah, let's cast Morgan Freeman. <laughs> oh, this this British reporter? Well, Bruce Willis. <sighs> Does he know, put like, on a British accent? No, he okay. just plays an American. But, like, in the book, it's a big part of it that like there's like these british people they're all like everyone in the book is kind of sort of like loosely based on uh real life people in new york city in the 80s um it's it's just it's a silly movie it's a silly mess of a movie you should watch it (laughs) um also melanie griffith is in it and she decided to not tell anybody that halfway through production she was going to get breast implants so at one point she just <laughs> has very large balloons breasts. up. Yeah. <sighs> um. Anyway, so after that he was like, okay, this maybe the problem was that it was too big, and he sort of returned to just like writing his own scripts, and he made Raising Cain, which it, I really love that movie. You weren't a huge fan of it. Um, yeah, you showed it to me uh, a few years ago now, probably about five years ago. Yeah. I I get it just came out in a Blu-ray edition which they they're calling the director's cut but what it actually is it's a fan edit. Yeah, that's that's exactly like a director's well, cut. Well, they Brian De Palma saw the fan edit and was like, "Oh, you know what? No, that's that's interesting." And he approves of it. So technically it's a director's cut. It I mean it has his cut in addition to the fan edit. It's not just like, "No, no, this is the movie now." Um, I'd be curious to check that out. And then Carlito's Way, where he reunited with Al Pacino. Um, and that's, Calle du Cinema called that the greatest film of the 90s. Hmm. Which, that's a big thing to live up to. The 90s were a pretty great era for movies. Um, I really enjoy the film. I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I've never seen Carlito's <laughs> Way. I always, I always thought it was like a sequel to Scarface. No. Nah. Only it's sort of like a is it like a loose thematic sequel? Or? Maybe thematic. I mean, I haven't seen right okay. Scarface, but 
it's just it's a great movie on its own it's about this like criminal attempting to reform but kind of like godfather 3 a few years earlier they keep pulling me back in or whatever like uh sean penn is like that's that's one of the most over the top sean penn performances i've ever seen which is saying a lot um yeah and then he he started the uh or i shouldn't say he started he was the first director hired for the mission impossible franchise right yeah he, he kicked off the mission yeah. Impossible. <laughs> well because i mean mission Impossible was based on a tv show and yeah you know, it was it's a it's a property yeah and I guess a lot of the fans of the TV show were pissed off by his take on some of the characters in the movie. But I I only know that one movie, and I never watched the TV show, so I don't really have a horse in that race. Pretty happy I just said that. And then he did Snake Eyes and um, other stuff. Femme Fatale, I mentioned earlier, I really love The Black Dahlia, and he was starting to Mission slow to down. Mars. Oh, yeah, Mission to Mars, yes. Can't forget that. <laughs> um... And then I haven't seen anything after The Black Dahlia, but like Scarface, I own Redacted and Passion on DVD. So I haven't got around to them. I think, I think Passion might be the last one to be released. He's got two further credits on IMDb for something in 2017 and something in 2018, but I don't... There's nothing really describing them. So mm. just random projects that may or may not be happening. Yeah, I overall I have seen very little of his uh, filmography, which is something that I'm going to have to amend. We gotta watch some Scarface. Yeah, maybe we'll. Uh, you know that would, that that could be a fun one to uh, to do an episode on, just because we're both coming to it in sort of the same place. Sort yeah, of. I I should warn you the the edition I have. It's not the one that comes in the big box with the money clip and the shot glass. It's just a plain old two-disc DVD. <sighs> so we're not getting the full Scarface experience is what you're saying. No, but I, I think there's a lot of special features that involve, um, like, gangster rappers. It's weird Talking to say, about how much they love Scarface? Yeah, and... it's weird to say gangster rappers. Gangsta rappers? Gangsta rappers. Is that, like, the official, uh, like, genre of of rap there's like a there's a certain genre that like well, a sub a subgenre rap gangsta like, gangsta rap. rap yeah this is the whitest conversation i've ever had actually <laughs> just to mention gangster rappers <laughs> yeah. motherfucker coming straight out of compton so uh, so where would you put um out of cuz you've seen a fair amount of Brian De Palma's films yeah, I've seen most. most of them. How would you rank uh, *Fan of the Paradise* within his filmography? If you were like to choose like your favorite of his films, like where would where would *Paradise* go? Definitely near the top. Um, if we're talking about favorites, and then if if there if I had to pick one to like show to somebody to get them into De Palma, it'd probably be this or *Carrie*. I mean, I can't imagine showing Phantom of the Paradise to somebody and having them not like it. Like, I don't know who that person is. Yeah, at least in my <laughs> sphere of, of people that I know, I feel like... Uh... Yeah, it, it really feels like there's something for everybody in it. Which is weird, because it's such a out-there kind of movie. Yeah. But it is grounded in such, like, a... Such a heart to it. And it just has awesome songs, awesome production value. 
and a uh, heartbreaking story. I mean, what's not to love? Now, I've read the novel, The Phantom of the Opera, and I've seen several versions of it. Um, like, you know, the various movies, and I saw it on Broadway and stuff, but, like, I haven't really... I've never read a version of Faust. I've never seen a film that was, like, just straight-up based on Faust. I've seen many Faustian movies where somebody's, like, making a deal with the devil for fame and stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I've never seen the Murnau Faust. Neither, yeah. Which... I own that on DVD, and I just haven't gotten around to it ever. But a lot of silent films, I feel like I have to be in a certain mood. Yeah, because exactly. you have to actually like engage with it in a way that you wouldn't. Yeah. Which is not to say that you can just like passively watch any film. I'm just right. like, yeah. there's this more involved. Um, and then the other aspect of this is the um, the portrait of Dorian Gray which is one of those that like, I feel like I should have read at some point or I should have seen the movie, but I just, I haven't. Yep. Same here. Um, cause like Swan has all these tapes and he's gonna like stay young forever. That was his deal. He made with the devil and he, ha but he has to watch the tape all the time. And it's interesting when, before we even know about that, we see this like sequence where he's just sitting in his office watching something and we hear this conversation that we had just heard a moment ago and he's got like this crazy voice in the recording yeah it's the it's it's the recording of the deal that he makes with winslow after winslow sort of like tries to stop the paradise he plants the bombs he's you know causing trouble and then uh swan convinces winslow winslow to uh essentially work for him writing he's like you can finish your cantata and we'll give it to uh phoenix to sing like that's cause that's ultimately what you want, right? So then, Winslow signs his, the crazy contract in in his own blood, and hands it to Swan, and then yeah, we then cut to Swan in his uh, office, listening back to a recording of that conversation that they just had, and his voice is uh, raspy and kind of like just sounds. Uh, like a like a creature's voice which is the same voice he has at the very end when his mask is pulled off and you see <clears throat> his face is like rotting and stuff because the tapes have been destroyed yeah so it's like his real self and there's that moment where he's watching that tape like when you're watching it for the second time at least like after you understand like what his deal was and everything and like what exactly he is watching on that tape uh you look at his face and you, there's a moment where you sort of pity this man yeah in that scene yeah yeah like he is could, stuck yeah. in this situation where yeah. he has to just keep going and he has to get other people to sell their souls basically yeah and i like that he is unable to get phoenix's signature because she's too fucked up. Yeah, so he never gets her. Yeah, because he even has the blood. Like, he, like, pricks her finger or whatever, and she's like, oh, look, blood! But she's too out of it to even, like, do it, right? That's my reading of it, that she never actually signs it. Because otherwise, I feel like something would have happened at the end to her, instead of her just being well, is Well, isn't that part of why they were getting married, right? Because he was like, oh, we'll get her then. Oh, you mean when they're going to kill her? 
Right, because they... Because the plan is to assassinate Phoenix. Yeah, because I think part of... Because they didn't get her signature for the thing. Oh, okay. So then it was like, we... Like, what are we going to do about her? Oh, we'll we'll offer her up in front of everybody and, you know. There's a piece by um, the rock critic Grail Marcus... I think it's called like Rock Death in the Seventies. It's in his collection, uh, in the Fascist Bathroom, and it starts off just as like this somewhat brief essay about like people throwing the term like survivor around. Like this was written in like nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty, I think. Oh no, it would have it would have been eighty. Um, and like it was like he'd seen an interview lately with. Um, like some rock star and they referred to it like as a rock survivor just because they still existed and he was talking about like how it sort of devalued like actually like surviving something like all, all that means is you're not dead and then he just lists like all these people involved in rock and roll who died in the 70s and he actually gives them ratings and like the first it's like these numbers next to them the first one is like um uh, like the impact that they had while alive, and the second number is like the the impact they have while dead, mm. and then the third one is like um, the way they died in relation to like music, and then it, the last number is just like the total of those numbers. So there's somebody like uh, like one of them was like Murray Wilson, who has a pretty low number, because like yes, you know he like helped with the Beach Boys because he was like their father or uncle and right, stuff. But right. like it you know, he didn't he like died in a boring way and stuff. Um and then one of those guys is somebody that I'd never heard of. He was from the band Stone the Crows. I don't even remember his name, but he was electrocuted on stage by his guitar in nineteen seventy two. Really? And apparently that was another one of the long list of uh, like lawsuits that Phantom of Paradise had to deal with because <laughs> like that the representation for that band was like so Beef is making fun of this guy and um, like, oh you think it's funny like it's interesting that it is the movie is leading up to like what's going to be like an assassination on stage and like this like singer is going to be like killed and there wasn't there had been singers who were like, who had been like killed but not necessarily like big rock stars. Um, more like yeah. a, you know, it happens a lot with like blues singers back in like the forties and stuff like that. But like, and then a few years after this, you know, nineteen eighty, uh, what's his face from England got killed down in the city. Um, John Lemming, what's his? <laughs> what was that guy's name? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Lemon. No, John John Lemon. Lennon. Lemon. Lemon. Yes, that's right. John, John Lemon. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like at that point, I feel like it became a real thing. Like, oh, this is a thing that could happen because it happened. Right. But in 1974, I don't know. You know, does it? Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, kind of like all those movies before 9/11 about New York City being like attacked and like everything, and <laughs> yeah, and then it was suddenly like, oh, oh shit. And like it could, I mean, you know. It, I mean, you know, I just mentioned John Lennon. You think of, like, the Beatles in the 60s. They always had all the security guards and everything protecting yeah. them from something something that might happen. And, all, I mean, all through the, the 70s, part of the reason why, uh, you know, John Lennon kind of ducked out of the whole music scene 
in the early 70s. Part of the reason was because he had a son um, with Yoko, but it was also because he was like, he started getting really paranoid mm. about the government listening to him and like watching him. And also like, I mean, he's quoted as saying like years before he was, he was killed that like, he's like, I, I think I'm going to die when, you know, when one of these loonies just pops me off. <laughs> Cause they, there were just these, like the crazy fans just surrounding him all the time. And, uh, you know, they would stake out his house and like follow him around all over the place and, uh, probably approach him with all these weird, <laughs> you know, I mean, cause you, I mean, can you imagine being that level of, of, of famous and having people just come up to you all the time and just be like, Oh my God, I, I love you. And you remember that one time you did this and said this and like, I was doing this thing and blah, blah, and just spout off all this craziness to you because they think they know you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean like that is just uh and I, I feel like it was in really like I mean the celebrity culture thing really started back in sort of the golden age of Hollywood when people really started to become like famous stars that people could like uh follow their antics I guess in the papers or in like the newsreels and things yeah. and on the radio and like you could even say it started with Florence Lawrence the um the first I don't even know what to call her the first movie star basically like the first actor in a movie to have their name in credits what movie I do not know huh Florence Lawrence Florence Lawrence um the she was the Biograph girl and then Carl Lemley got her away from Biograph and then started making movies with her over at Universal. Or was it Universal? It might have been Imp at the time. It might not have been Universal yet. But anyway. But anyway, <laughs> I feel I feel like, you know, Sorry. once once television <clears throat> rolled around, yeah. that's when, like, celebrity culture really kind of, like, started to amp up to a degree. Because then it was like, you know, because you never saw things like, you know, Beatlemania happening before... Uh, the advent of like television yeah i mean even like you know frank sinatra and elvis they had all like the screaming fans and everything yeah but it it seemed like a different level right and then it's like as you know the 50s rolled on more and more people getting tvs by the time you hit the 60s it just like it feels like that's when the the whole the rabid uh celebrity culture thing really kind of started and we're still, unfortunately, living in today. <laughs> and it's causing all sorts of new problems with social media and everything. <laughs> we're, we're sort of going into this other phase of it now where it's, you know, the, the, the world that's presented in Phantom of the Paradise is, it's it's a changing world. Because especially when it comes to, like, the recording industry where, like, things are starting to move away from that old way of doing things. And even, even in, when you look at the film industry... There are people like, sort of, you could look at somebody like Harvey Weinstein, who could almost be seen as like a modern day, you know, swan, who is like taking these, I mean, in, in Phantom of the Paradise, there's that scene where we get a brief little glimpse behind the curtain of like these, these singers being led into this room with this casting couch and uh, that, that dude just like falling right on top of them yeah. on, on the couch and just like, and then the door slams shut. And, uh, in this movie, it's basically saying, like, 
guys, we all know this is what's happening. Yeah. And then, like, decades later, people are acting all, like, shocked like, now. Oh, my like, goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but now it's, like, we're at a cultural point where it's, like, this is, like, these sort of things are actually, like, changing. At least they could change. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, there's, there's people like Harvey Weinstein who are just, like, being, dis- like, they did these despicable things and the, their responses are also despicable. Right. And then you have someone, like, I just, I don't, I don't know, I think it was the other day, but I just found out today about um, Russell Simmons. Uh, co-founder with Rick Rubin of Def Jam Records in the, back in the 80s who like he you know he's behind so much of like the history of hip hop uh, he stepped down today because of allegations going back um, like decades oh no kidding and he made this statement which was basically like what I did was wrong at the time I didn't see it as wrong, and I honestly didn't even realize it was wrong until I'm looking back at it now, and like, and he sort of like praised his accuser, and is saying like, everyone should come out and say if they think someone did something wrong, and like, he's handling it very well, I think, because <laughs> it was basically like he asked, um, oh, I forget her name, Sydney Lumet's daughter who wrote the screenplay for Rachel Getting Married, which I really enjoy that film. Um, she was, like, in his limo, and they were supposed to be giving her a ride home, and instead he just said, no, we're going to my apartment. And they went, and he took her upstairs, and they had sex. And it's, like... It was, like, technically consensual, but because he was, like, pressuring her to go there, and she kept saying, I don't want to go there. Right. And he, he's saying, like, at the time, he didn't realize, like, he was in a huge position of power. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is the issue with so much of it is, like, she felt intimidated by the fact that, like, he's this big, like, mogul, basically. And he's realizing, like, wow, how many times have I done that without even realizing it? But I honestly thought he was gay until today. I didn't know. I don't know if I'm confusing him with somebody else, but... <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know much about... Uh, yeah, maybe Def that was Jam just something like somebody that. said in yeah, a way know. to, like, homophobically insult him or something, and I just took it as like, oh, okay, he is. <laughs> anyway. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, I mean... Uh, I'm sorry. That was, like, a big sidetrack. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where... Harvey kinda... Weinstein comparing him to Swan... Well, I was thinking about the um, the way that the record industry is changing and how, like, we're kind of, in, at least in music, things are becoming more democratized, where, like, you can, you can have people kind of going their own way without record companies at all getting involved. Yeah, like, they the don't necessarily the become is. wealthy rock stars to it. Yeah, I mean, the, but they I mean, the way them. that, like, that rock stars, there are very few that, like, can rise to the top of, like, like a Justin Bieber is sort of, like... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure he's signed to labels and shit, but I mean, he came about through like YouTube and just sort of like, you yeah, know. like was it Usher who heard him or something? He was like his I don't protege. Know. Um, there's somebody else I can't remember who it is. Rebecca Black. No, somebody who's like who's not signed by anyone. I, Chance the rapper, I think it is. 
Chance the Rapper. I didn't he, realize he that he was out. actually a rapper. He came about, and uh, I don't think he's signed with anybody, and, like, he was courted by, like, all these different places, like, record all the top record labels, and, like, he was like, no, I'm just going to do it myself. And he's, like, hugely successful, and it's like, you can kind of do that now. Like, you can control the distribution of the music through the internet, um, but the chances of you getting to that level are, like, so slim. Yeah. I first heard of him because he was in that, um, was it Kit Kat commercial? I don't know. And it was saying, like, the narrator was calling him Chance the Rapper. And then, like, on the Kit Kat label, there's, like, a little tiny Chance the Rapper face who's, like, singing, like, Break Me Off a Piece of that Kit Kat bar or whatever. And then it's, like, supposed to be, like, oh, Chance the Rapper, Chance the rapper with w, a w right, I got you, got and you. i never got the like oh outside of the commercial this is a rapper named chance the rapper i was just like this is a stupid fucking commercial because <laughs> i i don't know i'm i'm, well, I mean, I'm an chance, old man yeah, and i'm confused chance, by all of this chance the rapper does sound like uh he would be like a puppet parody of something you yeah. know like like triumph the insult comic dog yeah so this is a guy who he's like an underground hip-hop artist kind of like who's become a superstar who's in candy bar commercials yeah Awesome. That's my understanding. Him. I don't even know the music or anything like that because I'm also an old man, who, uh, <laughs> an old white man who doesn't know any of this stuff. Let's freestyle right now. Uh, hello, Ishtar. <laughs> hello, Morocco. You're not a country, you're a state of mind. <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, the idea of like social media and like constantly like... Um, like showing yourself basically and like uh letting everybody know what you're thinking at all times um swan is recording everything throughout this entire movie like at at certain points we're watching like a recording of somebody watching a recording of something or no a recording of somebody watching something else that is also being recorded and then of course you've got the actual camera of the film that's shooting what we're watching yeah and there's this cool little moment in the end scene where, uh, where the wedding is happening and things are getting chaotic and the audience is starting to get out of control. And uh, we're seeing on stage, uh, there's all the, 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 the goons, all the security goons who are like these, you know, like you were saying, they're kind of like Hell's Angels people. Um, and the camera is sort of like going along looking at them. And one of, one of those guys just looks directly into the camera and kind of like makes a face like, whoa, like what's up? Yeah. And it's cool because it's like, it's just this weird sort of like, breaking of the fourth wall but it's all it's like blending in like oh now like the the actual film production of this movie is now like a part of this event too like the you know brian de palma's in the crowd somewhere yeah you know and it's uh it's cool because everything is just all of entertainment is just getting whipped into this blender and it's just becoming this like uh flurry of you know, well, and it turns into it all goes bad. It turns into death, and uh, they get torn apart. What? Um, all right. So after Beef dies, after he's electrocuted on stage, and like the Undeads, formerly the Beach Bums, formerly Juicy Fruits, they just disappear, right? Or am I just missing them somewhere? Like they're not in it anymore after that scene. Like one well, of them they, faints. They, they might be in the uh in that closing wedding scene just i wouldn't i just don't recognize them because they're always changing their look and stuff yeah 
I would imagine that they're there. Because like the somewhere. last time, this this last time that I watched it, I was like going out of my way to like look for them somewhere, and I didn't. And it, yeah, that band, it's like, it's such a cool little subtle thing to do where it is like, like you said, like you didn't even pick up on it, like your first couple of viewings or whatever. Um, where you've got the, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the, 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 the top of the charts, the Juicy Fruits, and they're these 50 revival, 50s revival band. And then you've got the Beach Bums, who are these Beach Boys knockoff, and then the Undeads, who are kind of this like, you know, big theatrical rock group they're like a band that's just like whatever the popular sound is of the day they're gonna try to replicate it yeah are, but like in the movie like they don't talk <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but like in the movie they don't talk about them like they are they don't refer to the the, the members of the, it's not, like the audience isn't uh in on that it's sort of just like we're they're they are acting like they're all separate bands yeah well even after even when they're the beach bums like they'll still be talking about the juicy fruits like swan will still refer to like oh the juicy fruits and like right um as if they're a separate band yeah or like the beach bums is just like it's like when for one album the beatles decided you know what we're sergeant pepper's the only hard club band (laughs) today yeah Or the but whole idea of, like, there is no authenticity in it. It's right. all... It's like, so, it, like, every band is just the same band, and it's, you know... Or they're all just, like, these people who are putting on a persona. Like, nobody knows, like... Like, when the Rolling Stones go off stage, they're just, like, you know, just sitting around, I don't know, playing checkers and <laughs> petting their cats or something, and then they're on stage, and it's like... This is a, just a couple years after Cocksucker Blues, which is, like, the the backstage tour documentary that um i once had the opportunity to buy a bootleg of it i wish i had but it can only be viewed legally like in certain situations certain people in the room because it shows the rolling stones like doing horrible things and they don't want everybody seeing it like there's like shooting up in front of the camera there's sexual stuff um yeah um but it's like, well, maybe that's what they were doing for that camera because the camera was there. Maybe they're just really boring, laid-back guys otherwise. I don't know. And, like, nobody really knew... Nobody, to this day, nobody knows what the hell Bob Dylan is. Um, and, like... <laughs> they made a whole movie about it. I'm yeah. Not there. <laughs> um, and... Um, I mean, this is also 1974, not so much in America yet, but the rest of the world was well aware of who David Bowie was. And he's definitely somebody who had a different personality every week. I mean, I mean, you know, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars had already come out, but like, that wasn't really that big of a hit in America. I think it was like the following year when Fame came out, that was when America was like, oh, this is neat. Yeah, before he was known as the, uh, that gnome guy. The Laughing Gnome. I don't know if that was a big hit in America. <laughs> no, I, I don't think in America, but like... I think they might have heard Space Oddity and been like, oh, that's neat. Right. Like, that might be it. I don't know. <laughs> but it's just, it is funny, because like, I, I remember reading an interview with David Bowie, who was talking about like, how it just took him so long to move away from the Laughing Gnome guy. Which now is just like, the Laughing, what? What are you talking about? Because it's just like it's not anything that you hear ever. Yeah. It's just like a silly novelty song. 
I wonder if somewhere there, like when when he died, some radio station was like, for the next twenty four hours, we're just gonna play the laughing gnome. Nothing, on the but, nothing but the <laughs> laughing gnome. This is for you, David. There is one thing that I would like to mention briefly. Is this, my the first time I ever heard about anything having to do with Phantom of the Paradise was there's this movie from the early eighties called Terror in the Isles. Which was, uh, it was basically a compilation of clips from what they call horror movies, but there are also some just like random, like, kind of like suspense movies in there and stuff, like, um, hosted by Donald Pleasance. And this is before I saw Halloween for the first time, and there's clips from Halloween that I thought was just Donald Pleasance as Donald Pleasance. Because <laughs> it shows a scene where he's like, there's like little kids and he scares them, and like he turns around and like, uh, a cop. Is there Sheriff Lee Brackett? Um, and I just assumed, oh, this was shot for Terror in the Isles. So this is just an example of somebody scaring somebody, and it just happens to be <laughs> Donald Pleasance. Um, but anyway, they use the shower scene from Phantom of the Paradise in that. And um, it was just so odd, because I just was like, oh, this must be just some random, like, horror spoof of psycho like it's young frankenstein but hitchcock or something right, like right. and it because it just shows like beef singing in the shower and the phantom comes up and he shoves a you think it's a knife but then he shoves a plunger in his well there is a knife there he cuts a shower curtain yeah but then like with his other hand he's got a plunger and he just shoves him up against the wall and says like my music is for phoenix and it's completely out of context it was so confusing <laughs> and then i didn't even know what it was until i was watching phantom of the paradise and it got to that scene, and I was like, at that point I hadn't seen Terror in the Isles in like maybe 10 years, because I was like in elementary school or junior high or something, and I was like, holy shit, why do I know this? What the, <gasps> oh my god, this is that plunger thing! Because for years I've been like, what the fuck is that? That's fine. Anyway, that's... <laughs> oh, and that actor who plays uh, Beef, Garrett Graham... I didn't realize until earlier today that he was the voice of Nilknarf. Of who? Nilknarf. Nilknarf? Did you ever watch The Critic with John Lovitz? Oh, yeah, I remember that show. He played um, Jay Sherman's father, uh, Franklin Sherman, who I, my sister and I always called Nilknarf because there was this, this is one episode where Geraldo was interviewing him. And he goes, so Franklin, I hear you can say your name backwards. And he says, Nilknarf. And then for the rest of the scene, he just goes, Nilknarf. So that's, anyway. But uh, I was happy to find out that that was Garrett Graham. <laughs> I wanted to bring this up when you were talking about all of the, uh, the the music stars from the 70s who died. Because hmm. um, there was one who, she didn't die in the, in the 70s. It was 83. But there was uh, Karen Carpenter, who... Yeah. had a famous collaboration with Paul Williams. And it's crazy when you watch uh, Jessica Harper singing uh, Old Souls. I mean, it, it sounds like that could have been written for Karen Carpenter. And she sounds almost like her. It's yeah. like she's like her doppelganger. And they both definitely project an air of vulnerability where you want to... If, if you see any like footage of Karen Carpenter singing, and maybe this is just coming from like after she was dead and knowing about all her trouble, you want to go up and hug her. Right. Be like, it's okay. Yeah. No, so it's just like, it is kind of strange that like, 
yeah, Paul Williams, much like Winslow, who kind of, you know, I mean, I don't know. Karen Carpenter was kind of his muse um, in the same way that uh, Phoenix was Winslow's. And, uh, yeah, she died. Now, she died because of a um, her, like, bulimia, right? Um, yeah, she had anorexia. Um, well, I think I, the terms are, I think the psychological terms like anorexia nervosa, which encompasses like anorexic and bulimic behavior. Gotcha. Um, this, I never looked into that really, but that's something I think is true. <laughs> uh, I think I read that somewhere. There is that, um, most of my information about her comes from the, the Todd Haynes film, um, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. Which, uh, like Cocksucker Blues, that's also technically illegal to watch, but that's more for copyright reasons. At one point, it was on YouTube. Hopefully, it's still there. It's the story of Karen Carpenter acted out with Barbie dolls. Mattel was not happy about that. I don't know. I've never heard of this movie. Yeah. When, was, when was it made? Um, I'm not sure. It was like late 80s, maybe early 90s. It's before oh. Poison and Safe and like anybody knew who Todd Haynes was. Um. But yeah, it's sort of like it does sort of like that made-for-TV biopic kind of thing, like a Lifetime movie about the Carpenters. But like it does it with Barbie dolls, and then it also intercuts it with sort of like, um, like it's partially like a documentary about anorexia and stuff and eating disorders and um, the evils of fame and the pressures it puts on people and just like people's body image and stuff in general and it starts out as like oh what a ridiculous concept this is going to be a hilarious movie the carpenters with barbie dolls and then it's it's actually upsetting yeah well from that upsetting <laughs> note i'm not sure where to go but um yeah we're winding down here uh <clears throat> with phantom of the paradise um overall super enjoyed the movie shocked that i made it this long without seeing it and it's always fun when you kind of like that's what's fun about diving into the old like i mean there's always movies out there to discover that may be your favorite movie you just haven't seen it yet is that what this is now is this your favorite movie of all time now i wouldn't say that but it's definitely like you know i don't know i've in your top thousand yeah sure (laughs) top thousand (laughs) <laughs> it's definitely in my top thousand. Not sure where it falls. In that Someday thousand. I should sit down and make that list. Oh but my god! I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's there. We should do that. Let's do that for next episode. If I was trying to, <laughs> off the top of my head, think of just like 1,000 movies that I've seen, I don't know if I could actually do it. You'd, you, I, you could do it. I'd wind up being like, well, Cutthroat Island, I guess. But I, you know, you've definitely seen a thousand movies that you like better than Cutthroat Island. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about how many movies I've ever seen, but like. A thousand seems like a lot, but when you actually tally them all up, it may may not be. I mean, just think about how many movies you watched growing up. Yeah, like true. nowadays, it's hard to like find time to sit and just watch a movie or go to the movies. Yeah, but, like there's definitely a time between like uh, like middle school through like I don't know the in the years after high school. That was a that was a big movie time when I was just like ingesting lots and lots of movies and it helps when um uh well for me i mean i went to school 
for you know I I am a cinema studies major and like so I would watch movies in class and then I get out of class and go watch movies <laughs> and it was just all the time I miss that and definitely the summer like growing up even like in elementary school like oh I don't have to go to school anymore because it's summertime just like two solid months of watching movies <sighs> yeah <laughs> now there is no such thing as summer vacation. Anyway. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so Brian De Palma, who directed Phantom of the Paradise, he was part of like that group of filmmakers uh, who would often, uh, you know... <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Well, because I know where this is going now, because I'm like, okay, because you were saying, like, okay, I'm going to pivot to our next yeah. episode, and I was wondering what your pivot was going to be, yeah. but now I see it. Like, one of the places where like all, all of this like generation of young filmmakers in the early 70s would hang out was... Uh, at Margot Kidder and Jennifer Salt's house on Nicholas Beach. Um, they had both acted for De Palma in Sisters. Uh, and, like, there were, you know, a lot of people who would hang out there, like Scorsese and Spielberg and various people. And they would all, like, you know, critique each other's scripts and look at edits of each other's movies and stuff, just help each other out, you know. Um, and one time, one of these guys was like, hey, I have a rough cut of a movie I just made, and I want to show it to you six people. I'm not sure who those six people... I know one of them was De Palma, one of them was Spielberg. I don't know who the other four people were. Probably Coppola. Don't know about Scorsese. Yeah, not sure. All right. Um, so they watch it, and everybody is, like, blown away. Like, that was very impressive, except Brian De Palma was like, that is fucking shit. <laughs> that makes no sense. Who is that person? Why are they doing this? What the hell's going on? So this guy who made this movie is like, well, like, what? Like, <laughs> he's kind of hurt by that. But he took it as constructive criticism. And so that young man named George Lucas decided, hey, I'll put a scrolling prologue <laughs> onto the beginning of my movie that sort of sets up what the hell's going on in this galaxy far, far away. And uh, that movie was called... Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Wait, that's the one, right? No? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that was called Star Wars, which now is referred to as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. <laughs> because Brian De Palma wasn't confused <laughs> enough. So he's like, this is, oh, this is actually part four. This is part four. And, uh, you know, and then there was a part five and a part six, which, uh, for decades, everybody just called Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. But whatever, they're called episodes four, five, and six now. And then in the late 90s, George Lucas went back to the well. Uh, and he started over with episode one, The Phantom Menace, which I have never seen before. Never seen before. So we're going from <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise to Phantom Menace. Next time on Talking Movies. <laughs> yes, because there is a new Star Wars movie coming out um, in just. Because that's a few what happens weeks. every year now. <laughs> now we get one every year. Um, yeah, uh, Episode 8, The Last Jedi, directed by Ryan Johnson, is coming out. And um, it seemed like a good time to, uh, to talk about something that is uh, very close to my. Uh, heart and my life which is star wars i grew up a huge star wars fan 
and I was there opening day. I waited in line for eight hours to get tickets two weeks before the movie opened to go see Phantom Menace. It's probably the greatest theatrical experience of my life. And uh, <laughs> for a young uh, 13-year-old boy who was obsessed with Star Wars, it was like the biggest thing in the world. Um, and uh, so much has been said about Phantom Menace and the prequels over the years. It has gotten so much uh, criticism, so much of it uh, justified, maybe some of it unjustified. We'll talk about all of that on the next episode. And I'm excited uh, to get your take because you're coming at it from the completely opposite end of the spectrum here. Yeah, I I mean, I wasn't really that into Star Wars when Phantom Menace came out, so I never bothered to go see it. Um, it The advertising was kind of confusing to me because it was like, oh, it's like this little kid and he's going to grow up to be Darth Vader, but we're supposed to like be cool with him. Like, I think there was, like, a Burger King, or there there was some commercial where it was, like, uh, it was implying, like, you want to be like Anakin. And it's like, well, no, why would anybody want to be like Anakin? You're going to be Darth Vader later. But, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, that's one of the conundrums of the movie. Which that, I mean, that's not even the movie. That was just the advertising campaign for some fast food restaurant that had, like, a tie-in with the movie. Right. But it it adds up into the so many of the problems that the movie had yeah but we'll talk about this is a conversation for next right. for next episode all right but um yeah so i'm very excited uh to talk about that Phantom menace coming up next so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of talking movies i'm max i'm tim and we will see you next time Is an old love, baby. It's older than all our years. I have seen in strange young eyes familiar tears. We're old souls in a new life, baby. They gave us a Time to touch old friends and still return. Our